this is Radio Land, huh? The Infinite Turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. Roar! Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Hank. And Hank, why don't you spill your beans? <laughs> that was good. I like that one. Is that a Franco Nero reference? That is not a Franco Nero reference. That's going to segue into a talking point in a minute, goddammit. Oh, no. What have I done? I didn't even get the intro right. And last week we discussed how Andy Richter is introduced on Conan, and maybe we should just not introduce me anymore, like Andy. I failed. People need to know whose voice is whose. It's important when there's only audio, so. Well, when they fail, like I have tonight, uh, segueing into our show because I didn't know the intro, maybe I shouldn't be. I should be silenced, maybe censored even. Well, why don't I tell you what it's from? Because it's from the trailer of The Lighthouse, Hank. Willem Dafoe says it two or three times to Robert Pattinson. Why don't you spill your beans? Watched it like six times right before we started the show, and none of it obviously seeped in. But That's the only thing that stuck with me. That's literally the only thing. Was tentacles. Spill your beans. And tentacles. tentacles. That's what got me. Right. I, you know, okay, looks like an all right trailer. I like it. I can tell that it's going to be unique and fun like The Witch. And then the tentacles popped up, and that H.P. Lovecraft ends mouth yep. sort of thing right off the bat. That's what pulled me in. That was cool. It was a great trailer. Well, in lieu of doing a recently seen for me this week, I figured we'd talk about the trailer for The Lighthouse, which is the next film by Robert Eggers, uh, the Eggman, um, right after The Witch, like, I guess three or four years after The Witch. This is his next movie, The Lighthouse, with Willem Dafoe and the Twilight Dude playing salty lighthouse keepers. It's in black and white. It's shot with 16 millimeter, and it's the shape of a square. You will go to the theater and you will have to sit and watch a square because that's how 16 millimeter projects. That was his choice. He wanted to be in black and white. It looks pretentious as all fuck. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with pretentious, but definitely pretentious. I want to shoot in 16 millimeter and black and white. Okay, well, you made the witch, so go ahead and make a movie about lighthouse keepers. But it looks interesting because Willem Dafoe is always interesting to watch. Robert Pattinson. Looks like he's from the fucking 1700s all of a sudden. Um, and it looks interesting enough. It doesn't, like, the only thing, like, you brought up with the tentacles, that's the horror element that is in the trailer. And other than that, it just kind of looks like a, a drama. But I'm sure it's going to be horror in the vein of The Witch, just kind of a turn-of-the-century sort of horror and probably pretty fucking weird. But I'm interested horrifying i mean it might not be quote-unquote horror but at least horrifying to some aspects interesting would probably be more interesting than anything he may be the Eggman, but i am always the walrus i think what really takes me back is looking where the Eggman comes from you know he was a an art director mostly his entire career and then kind of almost spontaneously did the witch it wasn't expected uh it was I, I would say mostly ill-received, and I would say by 
a great deal of people that are bored very easily and artistically it was really beautiful and i think that itself is almost a saving grace it looked completely different than anything else that was released that year it felt different than anything else that year so whatever he brought to the table with the witch i think in a a sophomoric film not getting in a slump i think he's really going to pound it out i mean it looks great it looks really fun I will say that he does know how to shoot in black and white. He understands contrast. He understands about using the look of black and white to your own benefit. And he was able to put spill your beans in a trailer and make me just very interested in seeing his movie. And when was the last time you heard that phrase? In all honesty, when was the last time you heard somebody say spill the beans? I thought you were doing a very slurring drunk Franco Nero, which we'll get into later. But oh, we'll talk about Franco Nero. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Franco Nero on this show. This is the Franco Nero show. And, well, it's not. It could be. Maybe next week will be. <laughs> next week might be the Franco Nero show. Uh, uh, I don't know if I could do that, Hank. Yeah, there, I don't know. We'll, we might actually shoot our Nero wad tonight. Um, but yeah, what was, do I have a segue? We're talking about Robert Eggers, and what do I do now? Do I? Oh, I guess I have to pick a movie. What did I watch this week? What did you watch this week? Well, uh, some movies with Franco Nero in them, but something that we can talk about on the show, I watched from 1969 by my favorite member of the Downey family that shot heroin, Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope. A very black and white movie. Yeah, another black and white. This one fits uh, in its style as to being black and white, though, because it's by an artiste, and that's what Robert... in it as well, though. Is there, uh, there's color in it, isn't there? There's some of the ads. The ad campaigns have color. Yeah. And I okay. think the ending credits have flashes. Uh, the Vinegar Syndrome just recently put this out for, I think, like the definitive very first time on home uh, video. It's written and directed by Robert Downey Sr. And uh, everything will call it a dark satire of American life. And I think it's kind of ridiculous to phrase it that way because it's not a satire. It's, a, to me, a very straightforward movie about how the world works. Uh, This executive board has a member that dies and they need to elect a new president. All of them vote for the black guy thinking no one's going to vote for him. They all vote for him. So the black guy becomes a new board president and turns this uh, ad campaign executive business in New York city into just the most wicked, amazing selling winning thing by transforming the design of how people think and the entire point of view is from a very stuffy old so, white man. It's point very of view. subversive as a film, I would say. That's yeah. the word I would use most to describe Putney Swope. It's very subversive for the time and for the subject matter of kind of race and advertising and just in culture in general. And it's not like a Howard Stern fart man kind of thing. There are a lot of in-your-face, darker, um, more lewd jokes and a lot of more lewd humor. You have a stuffy white guy directing this picture about brothers, and you have to look at it from that perspective of the stuffy white guy infiltrating the stuffy white guy world. And that was sort of Robert Downey Sr.'s point in making this movie is allowing people to see things from a different perspective or viewing race even from a different perspective. And this is way before like affirmative action had become a progressive part of our culture. So being a different color, being from a different country, something that really doesn't matter would hold people back and wouldn't let them obtain the same things as a white person. And in an era that you couldn't even talk about that, yet alone say the words affirmative action, a movie like Putney Swope really drove the idea that everyone deserves an equal right forward. And they do. That's, you know, 
Robert Downey a prince, he had a point. Did you catch the Boogie Nights reference in the film? No. Um, well, it's, I mean, it's actually Boogie It'd Nights a, is a Putney Swope reference. That's what it. I was going to say. Now you've thrown me off because I'm pretty sure one movie came out after the other. But... <laughs> so uh, well... Remember when the uh, the businessman come in and you have the Asian guy who's throwing firecrackers over his shoulder? Oh, yeah. That's what inspired the scene in Boogie Nights of the Asian, like, teenager in his tidy white. He's throwing firecrackers around Albert Molina's house. There are some explicitly hysterical scenes in Putney Swope that themselves just deserve credit of masterful directing by Robert Downey. That, like, there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where somebody dies on a director's board table, and another character just keeps yelling, you know, try this repeatedly like a broken record. And it, it just is so uncomfortable and so bizarre that you can't help but become enchanted by what's going on and another really neat thing is that most of the dialogue is recorded normally but the lead characters was dubbed in just to have this almost like it's it's like a beatles record a weird backwash playing fucking behind the guy talking the entire time and it's it's off-putting it's like an italian movie that's been poorly dubbed and it just makes you pay attention more to what's going on it's arnold johnson in the lead there johnson it Old has Arnie J. Been fifteen years since I watched Putney Swope, so it's been a good long while. So I'm not going to get too in depth into Putney Swope right now because I don't want to misquote anything from the film. As we uh, been a long time. You start the show off directly talking about the lighthouse, and all I did was look up at my shelf and saw Putney Swope. Well, that's kind of interesting because both the movies we talked about were black and white weird art films because that's apparently the direction this show is going now is just we're arty farty motherfuckers. That's, that's who we are. And no a little bit jokes. We might redeem ourselves with the audience with some goofy shit, though. And it's kind of funny. Uh, we didn't intentionally mean to do a show on Shark Week. But it's Shark Week. We're doing a shark show. None of this was planned together. Like, nobody took time to look at TV schedules. This just happened. And I just want to emphasize how lazy we are. And then halfway through doing the show, we realized, well, fuck, it's the exact same show we did last week. Because we're going to talk about Joe Dante and Roger Corman and Steven Spielberg. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much the exact same stuff. But this time, instead of small rubber monsters, it's fish. Very similar, though. It's pretty similar, um, but I mean, I guess we're continuing to talk about trends in filmmaking, especially in the 70s and 80s, about how movies could start a trend and then people would just run with it and do different things. Um, I guess we'll just get into it right now, because when Jaws came out in 1975, it pretty much coined the term blockbuster, a movie that everyone saw. It pretty much started the summer movie scene back in the day. And um, I think to this day, too, I mean, you can really kind of count on everyone seeing Jaws, even people that don't like movies or don't like horror movies. Kind of everyone's seen Jaws. Yes. It, Jaws is played on a perpetual loop on some cable station for the last 30 some odd years, if I, even more. I mean, it was I think it was the first movie on the Laserdisc, too. There's another little bit of history for you. The first uh, commercially available Laserdisc was fucking Jaws. And Jaws really changed a lot. It changed the film industry. It made people greedier because they saw they could really, really juice the audience for as much money as possible. Um, Jaws was also one of those movies that 
they made it really kind of hard for a while there to get on videotape because they just kept one in charge every time somebody watched it because Jaws was just a juggernaut. And eventually Jaws has just become a part of the cultural zeitgeist. And so many things got spawned off of Jaws. And that's basically what we're talking about tonight, which is Jaws ripoff movies. They're not all shark movies. They're just mostly um, created in that, that backlash of like, um, really trying to jump on that Jaws train to, to make money off of something that you they all share. I really think except for two movies, almost all of them share a very similar idea of Jaws. Uh, there's, there's some sort of creature attacking and somebody's not going to listen to it. And then people have to save the day. And yeah. regard, like the, it's a very similar formula. And one We're thing is still really, using it today. Actually, the sci-fi channel keeps making these. Well, even as the fucking mayor, You've got a major production movie out right now with, you know, what is it, alligators eating people. So, I mean, it's still – and what's cool about Jaws is prior to this, there really wasn't a massive underwater fear that you had, like, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and pretty simplistic movies, maybe about a tentacle monster or very yeah, – Nobody shit. gave a shit about sharks yeah, You had like, the 1930s on. There's a major shark thing at some, like – family beach in the 1930s that got people really kind of freaked oh, out. Oh, the New Jersey story. Yeah, and then it, nobody thought about sharks until the 1970s when everybody got goddamn terrified. Hell, I am still terrified of going in the ocean because I saw Jaws. Because I don't trust sharks. I don't get care that it's more like you're going to get by a pig, get bit by a pig at some point. But at the same time, I don't want to drown. I don't want to be eaten alive by a fucking shark. I don't want to become shit. I mean, that's what the fear is you can't even see it coming it just happens and it's just terrifying that's the most terrifying idea you can come up with something coming out of the darkness that you can't even see killing you bringing up old spielberg that's we brought up on the last episode our terrible tiny terrors or i think that might have been what i named the show or raul our sound guy might have named that one who knows but Spielberg has this way of capturing all emotions in film, and we were bringing up how he hasn't explicitly made a horror movie, but you've got something like Jaws, which captures pretty much all emotions from all angles because you have somebody that's very tired and frustrated that understands the problem. You've got somebody that wants to understand and is a conservationist, and then somebody completely confused. You know, any angle you want to look at the movie, every character kind of wraps you into what's going on and it that's what kind of made jaws horrifying and i think where a lot of these movies we're going to discuss differ from earlier underwater movies like i mentioned Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea is the emphasis is what is what isn't seen like jaws bruce the giant shark we all know was riddled with problems while they filmed and it was uh, you know a running theme of how benefit the film yeah, because the less we actually saw of that shark is what made the ocean terrifying, and that's what really helps motivate you with this movie is just the vast unknown nature of where this thing could be, when it's going to pop up. Uh, one of the movies we're going to talk about really kind of brought that forward with giving you emotion that the shark, or uh, in one case, Orca, was wounded so you can see it coming and it going and brings that fin back into play. But Jaws itself just was like Psycho pulling the curtain back and stabbing a woman it brought something absolutely new for you to be afraid of and that was the ocean itself oh yeah i mean throughout the 60s and 70s things were very much created like fears were created because you had something like psycho um, which created kind of the fear of the normal guy who turns out to be a killer you have night of the living dead 
uh, creating the zombie genre. You have Jaws creating the killer, I mean, giant killer monsters had always been around, but this one was believable. And I think that's the most beneficial thing to Jaws, because technically Jaws is a boring movie. And like, let me let me finish before like people come out with the, the fucking pitchforks and torches. But Steven Spielberg makes it not boring. The way he handles characters, the way he casts the film. He didn't write the film. This script was written by Carl Gottlieb. I can never pronounce his written his name. Gottlieb. Right Gottlieb. Yeah. Um, Based on the book by Peter uh, Peter Benchley. And what Spielberg was able to do is extract what is primarily not that interesting of a story. It's just a town under siege by a giant fucking fish. Well, what you bring up is character. Well, you've got a really interesting point with that, because if you've read the Peter Benchley novel, it's more character development than anything down to like Chief Brody and um, uh, Hooper have this falling out because Hooper sleeps with his wife. Uh, Brody ends up being responsible for Hooper's death in the novel. And it's just this very big operatic, sad piece. And what, you know, you're keying in on what really is the point of Jaws is what Spielberg focused on, and that's the terror. And that fucking shark breaking down, that saved the day because Jaws was going to be filled with Roger Corman monster effects. But that shark broke down, and they ended up with what they got, and, you know, all of us know the movie. Well, I mean, Spielberg is kind of a master at getting things done with what he's got. I mean, now he's got pretty much anything at his disposal, but he still is able to Steven take Spielberg could kill us all like right now. He's got the money. Us, the whole audience, every like two people that listen to Death by DVD, Spielberg could totally get us all wasted. But even like a minor problem on the set, even his most recent films, I'm sure he is able to just be able to like take something and really run with it and make it interesting despite being like an exploitation film for all extensive purposes is what Jaws is. It's an exploitation film. And that's the really the beginning of exploitation becoming mainstream in America. And now everything is exploitation. It's all superheroes. It's all ridiculous shit. And most horror films are art films now. And most things that were primarily exploitation films back in the day, those are your art films. So it's just kind of interesting how he was able to take that genre and uplift it from what it was and I, a lot of it is due to just who he cast just being able to, like to get um someone like roy scheider even dreyfus even though i'm not the biggest dreyfus fan dreyfus does a, a remarkable job in the film and um i even, think this um, is i mean i i know dreyfus probably doesn't want to hear this but i think this is really the defining piece of his career you know i don't think that he's ever catapulted himself to such a character arc as he did with Hooper. And, and from the beginning of the movie to when he first gets on the, uh, the boat and he has his falling out with Quint toward the end when they're swimming off, you just have a complete difference. Like close encounters of the third time is a uh, third kind is a great movie, but it's just, there's a difference. It's so sappy and jaws, even being as sappy as it is at times, never like, goes down into it's mostly i mean if you even look at the book it's a melodrama it's just another soap opera but spielberg is able to make everything seem like it means more that these characters like the character of brody you feel everything that this character is and it's just by who he cast and what the character is and how roy scheider like inhabits that character he is 
Chief Brody. You well, feel you know, everything feels. With Jaws and The Godfather, there's a lot of similarities where the uh, source material came from. That, in, in all intents and purposes, The Godfather was a dime store novel. You'd get it in an airport or a drugstore, and Coppola turned it into this three-part, massive, big-dick thing. Jaws mm-hmm. is in the same vein. You know, it was just sort of a cheap, th- and I, you know, no, no assault to, to Peter Benchley. It was just sort of a, a no, just a trash novel. It was nothing with a lot of purpose. Killer shark to- book. Well, it wasn't even it wasn't even so much a killer shark book as it was a romance sad novel where a lonely wife falls in love with a new stranger coming into town, and then there's a shark, and the guy gets eaten by it, and, and the mafia's involved. The yeah, fucking mafia. It's uh, the the Peter Benchley novel had so many loose ends that the way Spielberg took it and wrapped it around and like, let's just look at some other Spielberg projects like E.T. That was going to be E.T. and Poltergeist. We talked about this on the last show was going to be one movie separating both of them. Now, both of those movies are forever again like it. And this, I guess, is just a Spielberg thing. You might not like horror movies, but you've heard of Poltergeist. You might not like family movies, but you've seen E.T. It's just it's culture now. It's literally been driven into us and not because there's some force saying you've got to watch it because they're watchable and good. The guy can make a good fucking movie. It's what he does. I will say this, too. Like, I am not the biggest Spielberg fan. Yeah, by no means either. I'm not, I won't sit here and suck Spielberg's dick every time, but he has made some incredible films, some of the best films ever made. And he made, like, I know a lot of people are contentious with this concept. Jurassic Park, to me, is kind of burned out. I think it's an amazing film for its era, for its time period, but it's just kind of blown out. I can't really watch Jurassic Park anymore at all. But, but Jaws, I can, I watch Jaws at least once a year, always. I've never gotten sick of watching Jaws, and I've seen it probably hundreds of times at this point. It's almost like Goodfellas syndrome, though. You know, most people will say no matter what time they see Goodfellas is on, even if it's the end of the movie, you sit down and watch it. I feel the same way with Jaws. That Most of the time I've watched this movie, it wasn't even intentional. I've been surfing channels. Shit, Jaws is on? All right. And you sit down and you watch Jaws, and no, no matter when you watch it or if, even if it's the dead of winter, it still has... There's just that fear of the unknown, and that's really the ocean and what played into making this so just fantastic. I mean, even something like the Poseidon Adventure doesn't seem to capture just that big, vast fear. And Robert Shaw, to me, Roy Scheider's great, Dreyfus is great, but Shaw is, is that's what captivates you. He is Quinn. And he really wasn't super, you know, American audience friendly. He had done the, um, uh, the, Taking a felon one, two, three, and that was in was, Sunday. Yeah, there was a few big American movies he'd done, like mostly Mr. Green from Taking Felon One, Two, Three. I think is where people knew him, and The Voice. And Jaws was just almost every movie we're going to talk about coming up here. There's a Quint character. There's somebody that's knocked off. Robert Shaw and it's just it's either his look it's his voice his swagger that guy brought nothing to the table purely but himself this is one of his last roles he passed away right after Jaws was finished uh well not right after about a year year and a half after Jaws was finished this was essentially like hiring Oliver Reed for a role later in life you were hiring a very angry drunk guy and it you that's what this movie needed. But you look at all these exploitation films that we're going to talk about and what we have talked about for 10 years, 
half the problems are because some angry drunk guy either got behind the camera or screwed something up. In this sense, it's one of the very few times it was just, wow, like get that guy drunker. The, the more he drinks, the nicer he is to Dreyfus, and everything worked out, and Jaws just... <laughs> you, there's nothing to say about Jaws outside of it's fucking awesome. I mean, it's It's, it's the one best. of the greatest films of all time. It just is. Yeah. It's I mean, we have to suck that movie a little bit because it's Jaws. Yeah, and I think that's really a testament to Spielberg, even being a very young director at the time, really actually knowing his craft. And he will tell you, like... At, like day in and day out that he was completely ill-prepared for that movie. He thought he would never direct a movie again. He was barely keeping it together. But that shows the will of a true artist who he was, he was able to keep it together, and he made one of the greatest films of all time just pressing through. And that's the thing about Spielberg is he never has to make another movie again, ever. Yeah, he's he, not had he thought to. of as one of the greatest, he wouldn't even had to have made Indiana Jones, any of that shit. Yeah, no, he would just have still Jones. been one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, just over like three or four movies. Well, that segues us into something uh, where you wanted to go in the first place too. Uh, just the determination of getting a movie made is the Joe Dante and Roger Corman school going into Piranha that th- this is the, you know, first capitalizing major we're going to knock off Jaws. This is the Jaws ripoff, I would say. This yeah. is, the, like, the most famous Jaws ripoff film that ever was made. Well, and this, I think, too, is the biggest one where the whole cast, crew, everyone involved will straight up say, oh, yeah, we were definitely trying to rip off Jaws. Like, that was the point. We just made the creatures tiny so we didn't get sued. We, we changed it around, but we were knocking off Jaws. And this is a movie that probably should have never gotten made. Everyone that went forward to do it either didn't want to be a part of it or didn't want to do it. Joe Dante didn't really want to be a part of it. Yeah, Joe had no want to do this. And by the time it was being shot, it was one of those things of like, well, they're going to put my fucking name on it. So it better look okay." And he just, you know, he was a Roger Corman guy. Uh, We'll get into Piranha, too, like Jim Cameron, Roger Corman guy. What you have to look at when it comes from the Roger Corman school and these guys that came from it, who are almost all massive uh, Joe Dante and James Cameron are very similar to Steven Spielberg in the essence that they will always be remembered for very specific things. They will go down and film history, you know, Gremlins, Terminator, Aliens, whichever Jim movie you want to pick. But they all learned from Roger how to make a movie and that when you start, when you say action, all that matters is from when you say action to cut. And these guys, even if it takes like Jim Cameron, takes him 10 fucking years to get a movie made. He still brings that Roger Corman to the table. He still brings a carny sense of a product being thrown out to you. Avatars, giant, big blue monsters. Don't tell me that's not a Roger Corman idea. Come on. Well, I mean, it's really knowing your market. And I would say Joe Dante knows his market better than any of these directors. Um, yeah, because he stopped and, and bought in and is just living <laughs> off that Gremlins money, man. Well, I mean, like, he still is hungry as a filmmaker, too. That's what I find really interesting about Joe Dante is he still wants to get films made. Um, like I said, he did not want to do Piranha because he felt, I don't want to rip off Steven Spielberg. I don't want to make a ripoff film. But it technically was his first film as a director. Uh, before this, he co-directed Hollywood Boulevard with, I think, Alan Arkish. Um yeah. And this was his first because he Which, had I, I been, usually credit that as my... Like, if I'm talking about Joe Dante, I'll say that's his first one because I feel he did yeah, more it, work, but... 
Well, I mean, like, Hello Billboard is a mash of a movie because it has a lot of clips from other corner movies. How much footage did they actually direct that wasn't, like, previously used footage? Like, so really, it's just, the majority of what they directed was some of that Dick Miller footage that they had Dick. A lot of it. Yeah, they, they had some Dick Miller, and when you're and that's like going into Piranha. One of the things that I, I'll never say it's better than Jaws, but you know what Jaws needed? Dick Miller. Yeah. Um, oh boy, he could have been the shark. But like Joe Dante started out as a trailer editor for George Corman, and a lot of those classic '70s trailers for Corman movies, those are all Joe Dante, and he was really able to take Corman's ideas and make them a hell of a lot more marketable just through the trailer alone. And that's why Corman basically trusted him to make this Jaws ripoff film that he said, well, I'll get my foot in the door a little bit more and I can actually direct a full film. And he made this, and I think it's a terrific film. Um, I mean, it's goofy in a lot of fucking places, but it is a very solidly made film. It's got some rough special effects, um, but it really... Rough, but... Uh, endearing yeah you know very sweet (laughs) and some of the ways they had to make the things come alive for this movie i mean i don't know if we have time to get into the incredible details of how they made piranha but looking into that itself is just a feat i mean half the people involved got i wouldn't just say mortally were hurt but i mean at some point a lot of people were at death's door because of the production and what was going on while joe is just lost i mean everyone was kind of lost getting this movie made and there was just not abuse to the cast but everyone signed on for this movie and knew what they were getting into until they had to figure out how to make those piranhas work and a lot of injuries came from uh, just special effects and getting piranha bites on people, getting the piranhas to come to life ended with one special effects guy getting bludgeoned in the head while on an iron lung underwater. Just some ridiculous shit went on. And like, um, this was really the beginning of the Joe Dante style of mixing humor and horror. And also the way he casts his films, because you have Paul Bartel in it, you have Barbara Steele, you have Kevin McCarthy, you have Dick Miller, you also have Bradford Dillman. You just have uh, Keenan Ivory is in it, um, or Keenan Wynn. Keenan, I'm thinking Keenan Ivory. <laughs> Keenan Wait, which, Ivory which Wayne's? Keenan Wynn is in it. Yes, no. It's the old white dude with the mustache with no legs and piranha. Well, yeah, very Keenan Wynn. Not one, of the, the name. not one of the Waynes, yeah. Uh, not one of the Waynes brothers. Um, same first name, though. And he was able you don't to get, get a lot of these Keenan. basically fledgling stars. Um, all together and making this very terrific, very tongue firmly planted in cheek film. I mean, it's poking out the side of your cheek. It's it's so like daring you not to laugh at it the entire time, but also keeping the horror element involved in it. Because um, I don't know about you, but to me, when uh, Blinda Blasky at the end, um, when she's getting pulled, she's the uh, counselor that's helping the little girl. And she's the one that ultimately gets pulled down at the camp. That, that always makes me really sad. They played that very, um, it's Pino Dinaggio did the score. And a very strong Pino Dinaggio um, score hit right there when she's getting pulled away. And it's just kind of a sad scene. So he's able to do emotion in the middle of all this craziness and goofiness and horror, which for all extents and purposes should have just been some trash that they put out and was never remembered. But Piranha will be remembered forever and ever because it is like it takes the idea of Jaws, 
makes it a hell of a lot cheaper to produce, but still keeps all the integrity in Jaws alive. Steven Spielberg loves this movie as well. He loved it after he saw it. He thought it was great. That's how Joe Dante got hired for fucking Gremlins, for Christ's sakes, because Spielberg loved Piranha. I don't think he loved a lot of these other movies on our list, but Piranha, it's just a good movie. I mean, overall, it's just a kind of a terrific film. It shows a lot of heart in filmmaking. What's something that we were missing now is people say they want to make a movie and I've always wanted to make a movie, but do you have the heart for it? Do you understand filmmaking? And Joe Dante understands filmmaking, and that's why Piranha works so well. Uh, bringing us back to the point of uh, we we brought up before Steven Spielberg not making a full horror movie, it, that shows his heart. I mean, he went out on a limb with somebody like Joe Dante, and then Gremlins ended up happening, and he saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and ended up doing Poltergeist with Toby Hooper, where there's uh, – we've brought it up before too, but there's so much speculation as to who made that movie, who directed that movie. It's a Toby Hooper film. Spielberg was there. Spielberg had a hand on a lot of things, but for all intents and purposes, that's Toby's movie, and Spielberg will probably go to the saying the same thing but at the same time does it matter there's still it's still the product i would say toby directed the film overall like he set up the camera and did the shots but since steven spielberg was so heavily involved in it through casting through like special effect through all these different departments it's someone else making a steven spielberg film because he couldn't do it himself uh, dga rules uh, wouldn't allow him to make this an et at the same time I almost think that's how he has to operate, though. I mean, if he had to make a horror movie now, he did that, what, Super 8? Or uh, I'm probably getting that was J.J. Abrams. But wasn't that a Spielberg-produced big thing? I mean, no, so it was just... J.J. Abrams. So it was just one of those things that reeked so much of Steven Spielberg, you couldn't help it. And again, that proves us... just making a Spielberg film. That was his whole goal, was, I just want to make a Spielberg movie, so that's what he did. Well, that's a lot of touch, not so much with Piranha, but some of the other movies that we have on the list, like The Last Shark. Um a massive Spielberg feeling movie. And so you've got a Jaws knockoff things that operate with like the chief Brody character or Quint character, or specifically are about sharks. Then you just have yourself a Spielberg knockoff where they've tried to take that same budgeted thing. And like the last shark, that movie tried to look at the fucking cast. That movie tried to be a Spielberg movie just by hiring, you know, massive a name people. Well, I, at the time, well, a lot of that's Italy too. People. That's just how Italy did shit too. So I mean, well, I mean, look, you've got Vic Morrow. Who else is in the movie? Um, James Franciscus. That's a, a off-colored one. That's the lead. I'm trying to John uh, John Houston is the big one. That's He's the big mix. Tentacles, where am I getting mixed up? I thought he was in Last Shark. No, John Houston's in Tentacles. So who's the big bearded guy in Last Shark? Not John Houston. I don't think he's anybody, Hank. There's no big bearded guy in The Last Shark? No, there's a big bearded guy in Tentacles. You are mixing. Well, that's John. Well, there's. Okay, so wait. What John about Houston is in Tentacles, yes. Is there a big bearded guy in Barracuda? No. This is what I've done my whole week. I've watched big bearded guys in Jaws, and I'm just lost. I don't remember who's in. Bar- I remember uh, some people in Barracuda, but no. Well, bitter- my lead into this movie, I'm just going to have to cut and put in front of the tentacle lead because I was going to go into 1977's tentacle, which had John Houston in it, not a massive cast. But Vic Morrow is in The Last Shark. He's not in tentacle. If he was in no. both of them, it would be even better. But uh, yeah, you said James Francois. And I was like, oh, no, where are we? Uh Oh, this is the wrong movie. Welcome to I'm not going to edit any of this.
We're just gonna. <laughs> I would not dream of you editing any of this. No, this all has to stay in. People need to know what my life is like sometimes, and this is a good representation of what my life is like. But what's unfortunate is so many people aren't going to know the difference when we get from here to Tentacles, and we bring this all back up again to remind everyone: John Francois is not in Tentacles or Francois? in The Last Shark. It's James Francois. No, it's James Franciscus. I thought there was an M. No. No. I just thought I don't have a lead. I just thought there was an M. There was a there's multiple errors riddled James all over. Franciscus from uh, Planet or Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Several yeah, that, other productions. That helps so much more. Mm-hmm. Yes, now I see the clear picture in the monkey costume. I think Hank had himself a dairy or a gentle week and has just gotten everything mixed up. Well, the worst part is 90% of what I spent this week watching didn't even end up on the show. Like, great. Yeah, I got into, I mean, the Piranha remake from 95. Don't know why I spent so much time <laughs> watching that. Which, it's a, it's a shot-for-shot remake of Piranha down to the William effect. William Cat. And uh, Mila Kunis, I believe, in her uh, debut role, the very first time we see Jackie. One of her early roles, at least. Yeah, She's it's... also in uh, Santa with Muscles with uh, Hulk Hogan. What makes, I think, the fun of, of Death by DVD is not knowing where Vic Murrow fits in. He is in The Last Shark. He's in The Last Shark. He, he plays Quint in The Last Shark. Uh, well, I'd say he's a Brody Quint. Like, he's he's Whatever. got... Because he's not the full, like, like I've got to get this job done. I, I'm a war vet. I've done all he's this. Doing he's doing the accent. This is what he's doing. Which is weird for Vic Murrow. I mean, he could have just been Vic Murrow. get your shark. So are we going to go into The Last Shark, or are we just going to go, go into The Last Shark? I mean, that came a little bit later, which is weird for a Jaws ripoff. The one that's the most ripoff of Jaws is the one that came in, like, 1980. But I think a lot of that has to do with um, I think the, last the Sharks. success of Jaws 2. I think it was more of a Jaws 2 ripoff than a Jaws 1 ripoff. The Last Shark is one of the only ones that was, I think, majorly sued and given a, a cease and desist. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. this was pulled. Was pretty much just Jaws again. Uh, this was pulled, I think, out of European and Australian theaters directly for the lawsuit. I don't know what company released The Last Shark, but they dropped it. And it you know, it, it did fairly well in the United States market. It made something like $18 million for an exploitation movie in 1981. That's not bad. What we, uh, I mean, we could just go, uh, we could go by time. We, we could skip by... The Last Shark since I completely No, we won't skip up. The Last Shark at all. What we can do is we can go into one of the lesser kind of Jaws ripoffs from a man who swears that Jaws had no uh, no sway over his decision-making of making this film, but I beg to differ. Sharks are popular. You made a shark movie. Just eat it. It's fine. And it's called Mako Jaws of Death, starring uh, uh, Richard Jekyll from The Green Slime and some Baywatch episodes and a lot of other shit. Um, not Henry Silva. It's strongly who, not Henry Silva, who was originally that the whole role was supposedly written for Henry Silva. So I don't know. It works so much better, actually. Yeah, they just had to do like a B rate Silva knockoff to try and find somebody, I guess. Just imagine how bad that casting was. Like, no, nope, forehead's not small enough, jaw's not big enough. Need another guy. <laughs> can, and can then you got s- Richard Jekyll, who can looks you like squint more? Um, this movie is uh, interesting. Hank brought it up after he watched it. Like, this is fucking Stanley. Uh, Stanley, the, the, the snake film about a guy who is uh, telepathic. Hey, guess who wrote Stanley? 
same fucking guy who did Mako Jaws of Death. Wow. Yeah, uh, it's and that's itself where it's it's not a Jaws knockoff. Almost gets offensive. Yeah, it is. Come on. Create Stanley with sharks. That's you, what you did. I kind of feel he like uncovered his cut of Stanley and sat and watched it in his living room. And was like, you know what this movie needs? Sharks. We're gonna, but it has a different twist. The Vietnam vet isn't disgruntled. He was saved by sharks, and that's why he has an affinity to saving sharks. And he's psychic with them, unlike. Wait, it's the but same. But only way. with his medallion. That's when he's psychic with the sharks. He wears his special shark god medallion. He can communicate with the Makos. Makos only, though. And that's where the argument it's not a Jaws knockoff comes from. He's psychic. No one's psychic in Jaws. It's a completely different movie. And I gotta hand it, though, like, it's beautifully shot for a movie that just was accidental to really happen. I mean, obviously, it's I'll argue that it's not fighting off the flames of Jaws. Let's say it's an original movie. Let's say this was a completely original idea and somebody went out there with no previous knowledge of Steven Spielberg and Jaws. It's kind of good. I mean, it's sad. It, it's not as sad as Stanley. Good. Yeah, that's <laughs> Hank gives it one star. Kind of good. Um, like, here's my like with Stanley. I had some problems with Stanley watching it because it's this very conservationist film about snakes, and you shouldn't be mean to snakes, and blah 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 blah. And throughout the film, they kill so many fucking snakes. They are rough as shit with those snakes, and you can tell they are not dead snakes they take live snakes and just throw them up against the walls and fucking kill them mercilessly throughout the film it's just like jesus christ so and this of course is a little you... bit more PETA friendly version of stanley actually well you go back and you look at the making of and you you know read about the making of stanley it was under the guys that they didn't know that you know they felt pain which is somewhat a ridiculous oh, come on <laughs> it's a living creature you shouldn't have thrown anything at a wall and there were Certainly laws at the time, you know, forbaying things like that for a massively made movie. But, of course, Stanley wasn't massively made. There were uh, like there's incidents in Mako where obviously people weren't caring about what was going on. A lot of the sharks were living and were told to like actors, the shark's dead. And they would throw a living shark that had its teeth removed. Why did it have its teeth removed? What's going on there? Uh, there's a lot of unique underwater shots. It's a beautifully made independent movie. It's it's a little bit better than like uh, I can't even uh, like Barracuda has some really interesting underwater shots, but none of them like Piranha. A lot of the underwater shots are mostly from the Piranha attacking, or like there's the scene where they're the Piranha's eating the raft, and you can tell that there's just like these little rubber creatures popping up under the raft. You've got somebody swimming with a shark or multiple sharks in some sequences, but somebody's still, like, it's just got its own unique touch to it because it's a real living creature, but that still is iffy. What happened? like, my problem with Mako is it's so much fucking build-up with not much happening because it's all building up to basically the scene where the, uh, at the bar where the girl ends up swimming with the, the shark that ultimately kills her. That's, that's your big scene in the film. And other than that, there's a whole lot. Like, Odd Job, what's his name? I can't remember. Like, Craig? Craig Okamoto? We're going to call him Odd Job just because that was a great reference. That was that's in his name. Like, in the film, they credited him as, like, Daniel Odd Job um, Otakama or whatever his last name was because I, I don't remember Odd Job's actual name. But they knew he looked like Odd Job. 
they're advertising him like he's a big deal. He plays a thug and that gets killed like pretty like without much consequence in the film. And that's kind of the problem with the movie is it just drags along for the most part. And Richard Jekyll. So does Stanley. Well, Stanley does too. I mean, they're both of, like of the same kin, and it's leading up to scenes of Richard Jekyll basically going after shark hunters with a gaff hook and feeding them to the sharks, which are not very graphic scenes, but it really does impress upon that fear of sharks because that's like, the situation. Well, every shark movie has the same thing where as soon as you encounter a shark, it fucking attacks you. There's no if, ands, or buts. And sharks are not naturally going to attack a human. They do attack humans, but they usually can, like, confuse them with seals and other things like that. They're not, like, that strong a predator where they'll just eat anything. Oh, you came close to a shark. It tried to eat you. That's just not how things work. Most of the sharks would have just probably left them the fuck alone. Well, like, with Stanley, this has the appeal to conservationism and trying to keep sharks alive. And I think... In the long run, thirsty killers. Yeah, like (laughs) it's this kind of backward point. Like I think in the long run, by making this movie, they were trying to expose, like, yeah, man, Jaws came out and people have been killed. There's more people killing sharks than there ever were, and it's really bad. But you made a movie about sharks killing people, and it doesn't really help the problem. But at the same time, like when it comes down to exploitation and the value of it, uh, just cinematically and being a fucking good movie, it's one of those. It's so bad, it's good things. The Acting is it's like if you could imagine somebody like David Lynch making this movie, it would be uh, it's a masterpiece. The overacting, it's made to be this way. But what you have is a ridiculous. It's a guy similar with sharks and he's really mad about people hurting sharks, I think. Maybe he's unhinged. I'm not sure. He's not. I don't know. There's not a lot of clarity to what happens in Mako, which also it's I prefer its American title was just the Jaws of Death. Mako is attached on in a lot of places, but just the jaws of death gives you this venomous, awesome idea. This movie's going to be incredible. It's just going to be filled with blood. There are no jaws of death. Not at all. (laughs) Well, the copy I watched of this was on YouTube, and I watched the Commander USA's groovy movie version of it. And for all those you don't know, Commander USA was a horror host on the USA Network from like 1985 in 1989 and every Saturday. Not just horror. Well, I mean, he would show horror movies. He would show, it's just, that's the term of parlance. It's the, he's a horror show host, but he's, he's playing a superhero character. He's not playing a vampire. He's not Zachary Lee or anything like that, but he did the, you know, the midday movie on the USA Network and I saw so much shit on the groovy movie growing up on cable and I watched it on YouTube and that was the only thing that was getting me through Mako Jaws of Death, where all the old commercials, um, all the old host segments from Captain uh, Commander USA, and the Mako shit was just dragging the fuck along. And it's just, it is Stanley. I don't know how much we can more can emphasize this. It even, like, plays like Stanley. The performances are like Stanley. It's the same goddamn movie, except it doesn't have Alex Rocco in it. The worst part is as you're watching Mako, you keep thinking, oh, man, this is like Stanley, but not as good. And that's not like that's that's an awful thing to pop into your mind that you can reference Stanley so easily. Uh, (laughs) Not everyone can do that. And if you can, you've wasted a lot of time of your life watching weird movies, because I don't know how easily available either of these are. As I say, this is probably well, I mean, 
outside of that, I say this, they're probably on Severin or something fucking ridiculous. But uh, again, it's becoming a trend. Movies like this are getting complete re-releases. You've got a lot of the cast and crew still alive. And it's kind of a nice thing, though, because you can watch Jaws. But it being such a culturally important thing, recognizing where it came from and how much it influenced other people's is just itself fascinating. I mean, half of these people's careers came from Jaws knockoffs. Joe Dante started making movies doing a Jaws knockoff, and now he's Gremlins as a household movie. I mean, people, everyone knows Gremlins. Well, I also know that there were other movies in the 70s, and I'll probably get some of these titles wrong but that when Jaws came out, they took a previously existing movie, and if it had anything to do with sharks, they would just kind of retitle it a little bit to try to make you think it was more of a shark movie, because I think it's um, something called Sharks Treasure, I believe. I cannot I think that might be the title, but um, or Sharks Gold, something like that, and it's about people going after a fortune that's, you know, of water or of treasure that's underneath the water and it's surrounded by sharks and the sharks are a very tiny part of the story but it's there so they retitle it sharks treasure and uh i mean shark they, hunter initially is that same movie i mean that's the same basic movie altogether yeah, i mean was, shark shark hunter is one of those ones i will defend is not a complete jaws knockoff mako was one of the other ones but shark hunter is an adventure movie that was retitled and they for all intents and purposes they took quint and robert shaw and they used that and made a different movie they gave franco nero this like hacky blonde wig and he just looks so fucking ridiculous in his like canadian tuxedo denim he's wearing I want to dye my hair blonde after watching that movie. <laughs> we'll just get into Shark Hunter right now. Uh, it's a, a um, it's a uh, Enzo Castellari film, and um, I don't know if I pronounce his last name right. I never get his last name right. But um, the guy that uh, Jim Cameron almost set on fire, if I know the story correctly. <laughs> but um, Shark Hunter is it's a Franco Nero vehicle, and what makes it interesting is Franco Nero because that dude is fucking intense and in everything he is. His laughs are even intense. Um, but, like, the first 20 minutes of Shark Hunter are really entertaining because it's Franco Nero on a fucking 11, and he's just like that He gets into a seal. kung fu fight. He, oh, he gets into an amazing fights. kung fu fight. The, the parasailing scene is my favorite, where he's hunting sharks from a parachute towed behind a boat. And then when he spots one, he just takes the parachute off, like, falls into the ocean and just wrestles it. He just well, wrestles sharks and stabs them with knives. That's the opening scene of the movie, is he's sitting on this overlook, and his fishing pole catches something, and he runs out to the beach, and with his own hands, start grappling this shark and pulling it into line, loses it, then gets out onto the boat, and just, he wrestles, he literally, that's what you are led, yeah, into the movie believing, like, this guy can wrestle a shark, okay. But it's Franco Nero, so it's believable. He's fucking amazing, though, because he just, like, Franco Nero always gets so fucking excited, even when he's, like, smoldering, he's very excited. He's just so intense in everything he does. So all – and it, the, the soundtrack is fucking amazing. It's, like, disco and Franco Nero, um, like, wrestling sharks to disco music and him just being uber excited about everything. And um, I really love his uh, his partner he picks up. Uh, what was his name? Uh, like, oh Acapulco? Acapulco, yeah. Yeah, Acapulco. <laughs> 
Who's just a sleazy dude who's trying to get laid. They introduce him. uh, They give him like a full name and halfway through after this massive kung fu fight with like 17 people where the gringo wins, he's like, oh, you can call me Acapulco. And then they have to do an establishing scene because Franco Nero couldn't hide his accent. Oh, you're a gringo, eh? But you're not from America. No, I was born elsewhere. He's an Italian-American. Why do they keep calling him gringo, then? And there's just no point. The, the whole entire filming of this movie was, hey, let's go see if we can get Franco Nero to wrestle a shark. And they did, <laughs> multiple times. Oh, job well done, boys. Job well done. Um, Convince me there was a shooting script, because I'm pretty sure they just gave him a wig and told him to go wrestle a shark. Where this movie gets less interesting for me is it turns out that Franco Nero was in some sort of organization where he was in charge of a hundred million dollars and there's a hundred million dollars at the bottom of the ocean. It's surrounded by sharks and he has a convoluted plan to suck all this money out of a safe into a giant balloon. That's his plan. But we got to, we got to get all the gear down there. And the rest of the movie is him and Acapulco running away from people who are like the, the leader of the organization wants the money. This mob. And that's all they call it. Like they, they just call it the organization. organization. That's it. And, like, it's them running away back and forth, and the dude from uh, the German guy from Mosquito, the rapist, is in it, and he's always fucking with Franco Nero's lady, and you don't fuck with Franco Nero's lady, so he has to kill him. And Which then is we Vanessa Redgrave. Amazing 20-minute chase scene of, like, a car, a jeep, and then it turns into a foot race with guns, and Franco Nero does not know how to fire a gun. Did you notice how he was holding the like the handgun in this film? He was a peaceful totally man. uncomfortable holding a gun. He was just like kind of not even stiffening up his elbows. He was just kind of like lackadaisically holding in the air. He looks weird. But then it goes to a boat race after it's a foot race, and then he's like he's chasing a boat in a in a, a seaplane. It's just like it just goes off the fucking rails, and it's just all of a sudden this big long chase movie where the guy eventually gets blown up for killing Franco Nero's lady. But I will say this, justice for Acapulco. There was no reason for Acapulco to die in this film in the last, like, five minutes. It's bullshit. We got so invested the last 90 minutes, we wanted him. And the mustache itself carried it. He was a fun-loving, happy guy. What's a sleazebag, but everybody liked him. Instead of a Jaws knockoff, this reminds me of a Piranha 2 knockoff. Like this, this doesn't even really fit. This is a knockoff of. This is like an episode of Riptide knockoff. It has its own original content and this wild fucking story. And and what makes it just the most unbelievable is the entire time Franco Nero's not acting. He's just they filmed him on vacation, having a good time. He's so happy throughout the entire movie, and it's just off kilter to see. I mean, you can watch a Django movie, and then you can watch this. He smiles this entire movie. He's just happy to be there. He was banging Vanessa Redgrave and having a good time. What did you think of the uh, the chewing gum gimmick he had? I love the fucking chewing gum thing he kept doing. He kept sticking his chewing gum on one of the baddies' heads after he left. He would just be like, yeah, I just uh, emasculated you, put my chewing gum in your head, I'm out, bitch, later. Franco Nero, peace. It's kind of the same thing as the log lady in Twin Peaks, just I don't like it. <laughs> what? <laughs> She chewed the gum and then put it on the table at the... Oh, okay. Uh, there's a gum thing, yeah. That's a the, weird reference, baby. This is a... By if this point, someone's gotten through the whole I got the last shark cast wrong, but I remember Dick <laughs> Burrow was in it. It doesn't matter. If someone's made it this deep into the show, they're just dealing with it. 
all the weird references. This is probably one of my most, fa- I wouldn't say the best movie. We've not gotten to what I think is the best movie on this list yet, but this, this is, is one Italian of Italian my- crap and I love it. This is Italian crap at its best, though, because they'll yes. defend it to its honor that it's not a Jaws ripoff. And you go into the movie with that expectation like this is going to be a Jaws knockoff. And you get this fucking awesome action adventure, just pure exploitation. There's like you just said, a foot chase with a sea chase and a car chase. And it just blow. What the fuck? And it's just random fucking disco music. That was the best was the smile on Frank uh, Franco Nero's face while he's wrestling his shark. Well, fucking Italian disco plays in the background. I'm fucking. I am. I am rock hard talking about this right now. And it's like House on Dead End Street, like Giovanni Lombardo, Radice, David Hess at the beginning of the movie disco music. It's just pure Italian. And this is after like American disco had faded out. So again, what like with these Italian movies. Like hardly anybody spoke English, hardly anyone that wrote the movie spoke English, but they were trying to sell it to an American audience. So they would look at American ideas or American concepts and try and write it into the movies of like they really like disco. So let's put that in everything. Let's just flood the movie. Everyone smokes cigarettes, drinks Coca-Cola and it's disco. That's and it's 1981. It just doesn't fit. You know, it's just this weird multiverse of what other countries think the United States was like, and you watch these translations, especially with Giallo movies, it's it's almost, it takes away the horror aspect because it's hysterical. What was with the ending of this movie, though? Because Acapulco goes down with the ship off of this sea cliff. He didn't have to die, but we kill him off. And then Franco Nero gets out, and with the, the organization guy, they blow up the balloon and give all the money to the poor people because it was Acapulco's dream. And they all just, like, laugh and are buddy-buddy. And Franco Nero is just going to keep living on the beach, wrestling sharks for a living. He loves it. Yeah, there is no ending. It, it, there was a lack of anything. I mean, because if you would, you'd think those guys would have killed him and then taken the money. That would have made sense. That would have made sense, but he was able, and his organization friend were able to take down a boat full of people just with their, their sheer masculinity by, like, like, shooting them all and feeding them to the sharks at the end and then laughing together as buddies. That's a think, pretty a typical Italian movie ending, though. They were also upset about Acapulco dying. That they you nobody know, that seemed to care. Yeah, as writing it, they just bro, we got to do this ending. He's dead. This is I, I don't know. There's no excuse for like a uh, Mako. That ending was. I mean, did it even really end outside of pandering? It just gets. Uh, he dies and then they do the slow zoom in on the necklace to let you know that oh, he took it off and you should respect the it sharks off, it's and the, the sharks ate him the shark wasn't wearing the necklace he had the magic man but at least stanley applied you know i don't know reality that well, stanley just went fucking nuts at the end of it i don't even know what stanley was about towards the end Stanley getting toward like that movie itself reminds me of like a very unhinged Abel Ferrara or something Roger Watkins could have made in their early career that it like it gets very weirdly political and it really applies to this conservationism aspect and then it gets just grotesquely violent and explicit it's also like uh, almost a exploitation film all at the same time and I kind of felt Mako was almost the same thing it felt more like a exploitation film than it did like a a marine life or animal, killer animal, animal on the loose in the muck, whatever the fuck you want to call it movie. It was more like just this weird exploitation thing going on. And I mean, that definitely has to be the style applied looking at everything else that's been made by the same guy. But I don't know. Stanley just 
Hey, Stanley made me feel bad. You're Stanley, a lot about Stanley here, son. This is sharks, not snakes. Uh, well, that's the problem. You know, the the sharks. I, I don't feel like going out and conserving and saving the sharks after I watch Mako. You kind of make them look like the enemy. But when you're watching Stanley, it makes you kind of feel really bad about it. That there's something missing between the two movies. Yeah, well, that probably has more to do with the uh, slaughtering of snakes on the set of Stanley more than anything. It's just like, God damn, they died for this movie. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah, if Henry Silva had been killing all the snakes, it would have been different. But, <laughs> but Henry yeah, Silva really... could kill a child, and I'd smile. He's just such a funny guy. Yeah, like Shark Hunter is the personification of a cult point system, because Shark Hunter as a film gets like one star, but as an Italian exploitation film, it gets like five cult points because it's just kind of amazing for what it is. It's a it's a crap movie, but you end up really enjoying it overall. It does have a lull in the middle. Um, and also, Franco, you might want to destroy your three-dimensional plans in the fish tank of how you're going to get the money out because the mob is looking. Okay, but forget about it. Forget about it. The mob just finds it. What's funny is you look at something like Piranha 2 and you look at how it could have been and what James Cameron took control over, lost control of, and then you look at Shark Hunter and, I God, it would have been so better. Lance Henriksen as, as Franco Nero, the same kind of role. Because uh, Piranha 2 somewhat yeah, follows... Piranha 2 is a mess, is what it is. Well, I mean, you've got a, a gist and a following of what's going on in Piranha, but, like, you can tell where Cameron stepped in or where the Italian stepped out, and, like, you've got this long love story and character development of the Lance Henriksen character and his wife and their child and how happy their life is. And that's a lot of the Jaws knockoff elements that are coming and folding into the movie. And then it just like, fuck it, let's crash some helicopters. And I don't know, it needs more action. Speedboat scenes. Let's ride around well, on speedboats. A lot of what made Prodigy what it is, is the basically the story goes is James Cameron was set to direct this film and he did a good chunk of it. He cast Lance Henderson. He, did what he was doing, but he was working for a Italian producer named Avado Asinitis. And Avado, who is on our list again, he's the man who directed Tentacles, he did not like James Cameron at all. Oh, you mean the movie with Vic Murrow? No, not the one with Vic Murrow. Completely different movie. It got a big anyway, bearded guy in it there, right? It does not. You're confusing. No, Tentacle does. It's got John Huston. That's the big bearded guy. Yes. Tentacles, yes. I yeah. Know, hold on. I'm talking about Ronald <laughs> 2 right now. You're throwing me off. I'm trying Piranha to cover up my ignorance. Well, I mean, James Cameron got fired off that film, and he even tried to sue Avado Asinaitis to get his name well, removed from didn't, it. Well, hold on. Didn't he – I don't know if this story is true or not, but didn't he, like, hold the movie captive and try and set it on fire if they didn't remove his name? Something like that. I mean, it's James Cameron. He was probably, like, really blasting on coke that day. Or made um, dumb, but – But, yeah, it's, it's kind of a mess of a movie, and you can tell because it has big walls in it. Like, they establish about 15 characters in this movie. 15 different characters with all their different lives, all their different um, goals in life and where this movie is going. And, and in a right. very detailed fashion, too. Very detailed. And this is, what, like, this is what we're focusing on for most of the, of the movie. I mean, there's a few little action scenes here and there of diving and piranhas. It's a big love triangle at first. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, like, soap opera nonsense going on. I'm assuming a lot of that is Avado Asinitis. Um And then when we get to the end, when because Prana 2, we haven't, Prana 2, the spawning, is about 
a hotel that throws like a spawning fest when the fish come up to spawn on the uh, the shore it happens which they even eloquently explain like what in the first 20 minutes well what's the spawning it's when humans ruin fish fucking and cook them like it even like all of these movies even with jaws have this weird appeal to yeah like message to them mostly yeah but yet they use their eco message to completely display violence toward whatever. Like, well, let's try and save sharks, so let's kill a bunch of them. Like, these fish are just trying to spawn, so let's make the whole movie about yeah. fearing them and killing them. It's also about exploitation at the end of the day, so they have some guidelines they have to follow. But what ends up happening is the piranha are now flying fish piranha. So when the spawning is going on, all these fish start jumping out of the ocean and attacking people. And once the attack starts to happen during this major party on like a Caribbean beach. You cannot tell what the fuck is going on. You can't tell any of the characters. Like you've been introduced to 15 to 20 characters who all have their own little storyline going on. And we forget about all of that. And people just randomly just die. And that I would say is is definitely. Well, I think that is James Cameron. I mean, let's look at aliens. Let's look at shooting in the dark. No one knowing what's going on. The big shootout scene when they get to the bottom of the hive and Ripley lets everyone know that they can't fire. Just shoot in the dark. No one's going to know what's going on. I mean, that's a, a direct scene almost out of aliens. And you can see, like, with the development of the character with Lance Hendrickson, that's a lot of James Cameron. He wanted to make it. I think that's where a lot of issues come forward, that he shot all these personalizing things, making these characters, and then what else? What do we do with this? Why do we have all this about the wife's friend that she's diving with? Oh, well, I guess he's part of this organization again that knows about everything. Because it turns into this CIA operative movie halfway through that, oh, we knew about it. We sent somebody to take care of... Yeah, it's just, it's, and that I feel, I mean, look at how Cameron's career turned out, and then look at some of the holes in Piranha, it's just like, hey, let's, CIA, government, yeah, fuck it, let's just keep, (laughs) just throwing weird things in to keep the ball rolling. Well, it doesn't even seem like they wrap anything up, because once the spawning actually commences, it's just like, it's fucking chaos, and I can't, you can't, like, give me this character and give him all these hopes and aspirations and then kill him off in a second without any fanfare. That's just not what the build is indicating. And then like, cause at the end it's just, we don't follow any of these characters anymore. They just literally drop dead. Some of them just disappear from the film. I guess they got eaten at the spawning. I can't really tell what's going on. So overall, I just think Piranha 2 is just a misstep on a lot of, but I think a lot of that is Avido Asinitis's fault because he wanted to crap out a product. He hired a difficult director and well, he hired a difficult guy before he was even difficult. I mean, when you yeah. – I, I feel at this point they did – they tried to do the same thing with Piranha. They went after a Corman guy. That's all Cameron was doing. He was trained, and Jim Cameron fucking learned everything he uses to this day with Avatar movies from Roger Corman. They wanted to do the same thing. They just hired a guy that had an idea of something else, and that's where the difficulty lays in. I mean, right off the bat, he got fucked. He wanted to make an actual movie instead of an exploitation movie, but he hired a, they hired a Roger Corman guy because they wanted a Roger Corman product, and Jim just... Yeah, he's, he's, Jim is not about making Jim. a Roger Corman product, because Jim has always been this way. Jim Cameron has always had very big ideas, and he always wants to execute his... Like, I, can't, I can't falter him for that, because he always wants his vision on the screen, but he also... Uh, let's look at the end of the movie. utter dick about that vision a lot of the time. 
I mean, the movie ends with uh, Lance Hendrickson jumping out of a helicopter for no reason that they blow the shit out of. They blew up. And how much is a helicopter? That's got to cost something. Even in 1980s Italian money, that had to be a hole in a debt for no reason. And it's just over the top stuff that you can kind of pick out and tell like, ah, I'm going to go with that's Jim. I'm going to say he wanted us to blow up seven helicopters. So we did. And that's where problems happen, where you have a budget and seven helicopters. It's a lot. (laughs) So it's a lot of stuff to blow up. Yeah. But I think like out of all these movies, Piranha two is well served by history at this point. It is what it is and it gets what it deserves basically. Um, it's actually it's a really not, fun movie. It's, it's, it's not decent. really remembered. It's people don't track this down to watch. They might watch it as a like a Jim Cameron curiosity, but it I think it's cemented its place in history as mostly an afterthought, which is fine with me because it's an afterthought movie. Well, a lot of people too will recognize like Terminator as Cameron's first movie, and <laughs> he will. That's he does himself. He would deeply prefer we all recognize that. And it's not just because he had his touch completely on it, but if you're making a piece, if you're releasing a piece that's your art and somebody else touched it, you might not think it's yours anymore. So you got to dip and sway with something like that. But for its whole, Piranha 2 is a really enjoyable movie. Like, it's the Lance Henriksen parts, I think, really make it what it is. I mean, you've got really young Lance Henriksen, and he is acting his ass off. He is the character. He really is doing a whole Roy Scheider thing. Well, Lance Henriksen can make any movie better, and Lance is great in the film, as he always is great in any film, no matter how shitty. Like, he's great in fucking Hellraiser 8, for Christ's sakes. But the film in itself, I just can't get behind. I just get really bored with it. It just doesn't do it for me. I'm just not a Piranha 2 fan, particularly. Outside, uh, up until the spawning. I was going to say outside of the spawning, but that's up until that point. The movie's pretty coherent, and you're really in for the ride. Once the spawning and the massacre on the beach happens, it just, all, all the ties become loose, and you lose a lot of the coherency of what's going on and the effects after that point seem to drop off. Uh, there's what it's the yacht scene. You've got a ridiculous filler scene where these two girls pull up and, uh, they end up finagling food out of a stuttering chef who they trick into the ocean where they're one of the first victims where you see the actual flying piranha spike and attack people. And it really shows just the goofiness of the movie because they've not explained anything yet. It's a flying fish. Uh, uh, okay. But you had to exploit the stuttering guy to get to that point, And I well, get it. Well, that stuttering guy scene is like six or seven minutes of him, like trying to get on the boat and them fucking with him. And it's just like, it, none of this is necessary it's this way too much filler. People being cruel to a guy, <laughs> and then we never go back to him. He just and got fucked is, over by girls. But you can establish with that scene them trying to show you what your monster is. Like, here's some shitty throwaway characters to die. But it was just so mean. I, I don't want to cheer on these people dying. I want to be shocked. That's like... When the Kittner kid gets killed in Jaws, you weren't expecting that. That's a stop to get pulled. He a kid got eaten? But oh, that's, that Kittner boy. That shit shocks you because it was right out of nowhere. You, you didn't, like, show the kid bullying Brody's kids beforehand. Like, oh, he deserved it. He was a little prick. Fuck that kid. He was just a child. That scares you. That gives you a, a thought that anyone can be hurt. When you're watching Piranha 2, it's just like, uh... Maybe I should never go anywhere to the beach. I don't know. The flying fish, there's not a lot of fear to be had. Like, where do you 
compose what you're going to be afraid of. Yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I'm not much of a Piranha 2 fan. That's all I'll say. I mean, I'll slob the big knob of James Cameron every day. I love Aliens. I think he's great. I I think he's flawless, but come on, Piranha 2. He is very flawed. He's made some terrible films, I admit it. Which which is the most flawed Jim Cameron movie? I think Avatar is garbage. Oh, I didn't. I wasn't gonna count that one. <laughs> you have to count. <laughs> I was. I wasn't gonna count that one. I was expecting you to say like uh, I don't know. Like the Terminator is a great film. Terminator <laughs> Two is a is a good film. Um, okay, what, Aliens is best? an awesome movie. What's the best Jim Cameron movie? Uh, Jesus Christ! I I have a love for Terminator and Aliens. A lot of people think Terminator 2 is much better. I do not. I think Terminator 2 is bloated. The actual official Terminator 2 page the other day posted an article why Terminator 2 is better, and it makes me wonder if, like, Gail Ann Hurd... Well, no, it's like Gail Ann Hurd or somebody running the other Terminator page, and they're just battling and having this flame war of which movie's better. Terminator is is a slasher movie, and I think it appeals... Especially to our interests and in, in Death by DVD, because that's really what it is. It's the same thing as Michael Myers hunting down his sister. It's a scary guy in a mask, and you know it's a robot in this sense. But it's got all the buildings. Yeah, I mean, and Terminator Two is a massive, over the top, insane action movie, and it's got its appeal uh, as an action movie, as a special effects wonder. It's definitely a better movie. It stands out. Terminator Two is on one aspect better, but Terminator is a written frightening horror film is what I think is James Cameron. Even looking at like Titanic, there is a massive amount of fear that he tries like Spielberg to play from every aspect of the playing field. Like the Rose character has, I don't know, the same thing going on as the character in Piranha 2, that there's somebody that's completely afraid of change and life moving on around them. I'm bullshitting and pulling Titanic into Piranha 2, but James Cameron, uh, yeah, I could keep this going and really try and take it seriously, but I'm laughing at myself. Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing at myself now, but... I don't want to get this heavy into James Cameron personally, but whatever. Um, I think he has got uh, some balls on him, and I just enjoy what he does. I mean, even something as ridiculous as the three hour cut of the abyss it's great like we talked about it last week it's a great movie the more that he the more that was cut in that movie made it worse that could have been a five-hour movie and it would have been all right yeah i mean i think we should segue out of james cameron piranha 2 john houston are you tired of james cameron James Cameron living in your pool? Has James Cameron come to your house and asked to borrow your diving equipment? If so, try the new James Cameron whistle. One, two, we'll get Jim to scoot. The James Cameron whistle by Death by DVD. The only surefire way to get the director of Piranha 2, the spawning, out of your pool. Available only at Death by DVD. Yeah, John Houston, Shelley Winters. Uh, oh, of course, uh, Bo Hopkins, because he, he's a classic. That's what no I trust is a, a marine biologist who is obviously from like Alabama or some shit. 
Um, God, who else is in Tentacles? Oh, Henry Fonda it has a huge cast, and it's basically an Italian ripoff. Film. The driest acting from Henry Fonda of yeah, all time. He not give a fuck in this movie. He does not care to be in it at all. And it's this is not a, even like reading off a cue card. Somebody is like reading him his dialogue. Oh. He's very unhappy to be in this movie. Uh, it's a direct Jaws ripoff. It was made in response to Jaws because Avido said, "Hey, I need to make a, a big fish picture." And he, all the big fish were taken, so he decided to use a, a big octopus. Which all the just, big fish were taken. Hardly any of the big fish were taken. They picked... Uh, how many of the big fish actually were taken? Jaws is sharks. Fish. That's, okay. the, that's the big fish. Okay, but okay, we have one whale movie before this. There are so many... Not a fish, fish. mammal. Okay, uh, uh, swordfish. That's a big swordfish. Swordfish is not a fucking movie. Exactly. It's got sword in the title. It sounds horrifying. The fish okay. that stabs. Oh, swordfish. You go write your sci-fi channel movies for the asylum. You go be happy with your swordfish movie. Uh, what if it was like a 17th century movie and it was like the French Foreign Legion or the Musketeers fighting a swordfish, you know, and it's for... Ah, oh, fuck it. This is awful. All of your ideas are terrible, Hank. Yeah, no, I, I I had to stop. That's <laughs> you know who isn't in this movie though. Um, John I'm, Houston? No, no, wait, no. John, John Houston, Houston is in this one. He's the big bearded guy. He's, he's not even that big. He's a skinny fuck. He just he's tall. Yeah, he's big. You know, he's he's lurching. He lumbers. John Houston. When it's funny because the opening credits of this movie before it gives you the director and cast, it says John Houston. So it's like this almost uh, purely Italian lie of like yeah, maybe you think he did it. <laughs> Same guy that did Treasure of the Sierra Madre Could have been him, maybe, who knows Maybe he's in it, find out soon And right off the bat, John Huston Is an establishing character And one of my biggest annoyances with this movie Is you get this really great Detailed, like, relationship Between John Huston and Shelley Winters And they're acting off each other they, They're great, it's really pleasant to watch And about 30 minutes after that They never fucking come back to the movie They just <laughs> That's it, there well, you go they're in it separately past that. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the last, like, 45 minutes is mostly Bo Hopkins. Yeah, I think the last 30 minutes is Bo Hopkins. But, um, like, what the fuck is up with Shelly Winters in this movie? She is on speed, man. Because you would I tell love- none of that was written. None of that. She is just improving all this shit with her giant sombrero. Uh, yeah, there's like, there's a sombrero scene that just makes me lose my shit that she's talking to it's supposed to be her child and her child's friend and they're gonna go on this big yacht race race yacht race race yeah like I said it right shark. yeah like regatta a lot of races that happen in these movies like Jaws too basically. Well, there's this weird overdubbed, like, fat joke to Shelley Winters where the, the kid says, like, oh, mommy, a tornado would have to flood our boat. And Shelley Winters turns and looks pissed off. And the dubbing's like, you're plump, mommy. It's more to love. But it's like the weird George kid from uh, House by the Cemetery. And it's just this oh, off put. Yeah, nothing a child would actually say whatsoever. And Shelley Winters just diehard angry reaction back to it. It is just, it's. Her she whole performance is like was nuts in this movie. She is just uh, she showed up and said, "I'll just do what I do. You got my name. It's what you get." I'm she didn't read the script. I want. She had no ideas about sharks. She was just there. Brought the sombrero. It was well, awesome. I mean, John Houston is there to look dignified and pretend like he has something to do with the plot. I'm uncovering what's going on, and it turns out they're building a tunnel that's woken up a giant octopus. Bo, bring your killer whales to kill the octopus. With 
Quint, you, you've got a great, this is my favorite out of all of them, Quint performance, that this Quint knockoff even does. You've got the whole speech where he teaches you, you got to get the shark through the gill and the gowl and get it, what is it, mooning or something? They have a, it's actually a title that they use for this movie that sharkers or shark hunters use to no, this that, day. That was from Shark Hunter. No, oh, God Jack. damn it. I yeah. gotta have them all mixed up. I you can't have everything that. backwards. No, that that whole uh, the phrase was from Shark Hunter. Um, well, what are we this, on tentacle again? We're on we tentacles. Get, when are we gonna talk about the one I know about? Because I know so many things I'm never gonna talk about with Shark Hunter. Because <laughs> it's this John Houston shit. Just uh. No, like um, tentacle is Bo Hopkins, and we do have a quint scene where he's with some Italian gentleman who's been dubbed, and he's telling that's the, the story guy. of how he got his killer whales. And I don't know if that's how you transport killer whales in some sort of giant iron floating device. You just you just put them. Is in it those autumn and winter or winter and summer? What? <laughs> oh yeah, it's um, it's winter and summer, I think, or something like that. Or Monday and Tuesday. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Monday and Tuesday, but at this point, who? It's when I it? found them. That's where they got their names. I've done all kinds of great impersonations tonight. I just want to let you know. That's about Bo Hopkins. It's pretty good. I actually thought it was Bo Hopkins. Uh, I'm not fat enough. He's not that big in this movie. He's all in right. This movie, he's skinny. And in subsequent movies, he is getting, like, watch Mutant with uh, Wings Hauser. He is this is a, when he was on cocaine. Fun. Everybody yeah. was on cocaine. It was probably probably part of the budget of this movie was cocaine, which the last shark is the same. Cause I, I just keep intermingling oh, yeah. in between the two of them. We will get into last shark here shortly. When we but, get into it, I'm not going to have anything to say because <laughs> I fucking got all my facts wrong on the rest of the show. <laughs> um, no, like tentacles has like one of my favorite soundtracks of the night. I mean, it doesn't have the disco, but as far as like trying to appropriate a John Wynn score, like, it does well. Because the octopus has its own theme music, which is just kind of like da na 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 na. Well, this one's like craft work. It's like like angry German, like like very like early industrial Nietzsche Ebb sounding. It does not come like like happily with the movie. And then you've got the ridiculous scenes where they get close to where the tentacle is going to pop out of, but they fill it in with shots of a regular octopus. So you've got like a clearly some Jacques Cousteau octopus swimming around. And then the giant arm hits the toy boat that's coming out of nowhere and in no the adorable it's... miniatures i mean there's a couple of miniatures in here like the ship sinking and a couple other things i guess it does have some adorable miniatures because shark not, they're not some... even adorable miniatures those are adorable oh, children's toys. like they those oh, were yeah. like toys bought at a dollar store and a bathtub like shot from under and then you've got like the tentacle when it comes out at the one point that cracks the boat and it comes from the the bottom and everyone gets flipped out by the big cove and the that's when the italian guy gets pulled down the big fat guy it like it's just shots of an octopus it's just swimming around just a just tiny little guy happy little fellow tiny we little guy. stock footage not much for special effects and the most of the special effects are just tentacles rubber tentacles that they have and they also have this one like octopus kind of headpiece that they tow behind a boat because like during this whole regatta scene where the octopus is like killing all these people that are in the sailboat race it's just like octopus don't swim that way they like propel themselves with jets of water. They don't. And like how many legs do you like think a they shark? Because seriously, like during that regatta, the octopus head is crested on the surface, and it's just like, like a fucking speedboat whipping through people. And that's like that's not how an octopus actually works, folks. That's that. 
like you know zoologically correct that scene alone is one of my favorites because it stops with Shelley Winters really upset on the walkie-talkie and they just start putting in stills of people on the beach while the music is playing and yeah, then that it cuts odd. Yeah, I then it, it, it be an odd scene. It cuts to the octopus face coming and then it cuts back to the stills and it's just this very like obviously they didn't have everything they needed to shoot to run with that scene and just slapped it together at last minute. But it's one of those moments too where you're like, Is my fucking DVD player screwed up? What's going on? But the music is playing perfectly. There's still a soundtrack. It's it's off putting, but it fits into the whole, you know, scheme of what's going on. And then after this point, you lose Shelly Winters, you lose John Houston, you've got bow and the boat and then i mean that the last scene of the movie you've got the the whales coming back and them jumping and the stock footage of the two whales and it's all happy and you kind of lose focus that like 37 kids died during that race like yeah <laughs> a lot of people died there was um, a mass but everybody in bo hopkins family dies in the movie his wife his wife's sister the like, last scene with John Houston is him like taking off the the woman whose son just died and just like oh it's the end we're going that's it and and they just cut out all the stars outside of Bo Hopkins yeah and like I find this movie every time I've watched it and I've seen it maybe three times in my life and every time I get so bored when it just strictly gets into the Bo Hopkins stuff and the killer whales that I can never remember how this movie ends. I remember most of the lead up. I remember Henry Fonda's like one or two scenes. I remember John Houston doing his news report thing. But when we get into the like the Jaws ending of we got to go hunt for this thing, I just get so bored and just forget everything that happens. It seems like John Houston really got into this role and like developed something and came up and brought something really great to the table and no one else was interested in it. Like, all right, we'll let we got John Houston, so we'll let him do his old man thing for a little bit and just just write it off. That you've got this big, you know, he's been defeated before by the press and he's a historic newspaper writer and he's going to break the case and then you just get rid of the character with oh I'm sorry your son died let's go walk off together and that's what happens that's he the walks end. off with yeah. the lady he's just gone from the movie after that waving his cigar away that's the end of John Houston but it seemed like there was a lot more that was available to do with all of these characters and you've got again looking at the core Jaws characters Hooper Brody and Quint all of them make appearances here but they're so different like uh, the Hooper character really is a, a big mix of John Houston but he's got a lot of Quint in him then you've got the Bo Hopkins character who is a young ambitious version of pretty much everyone from Jaws so they took all those archetypes that made the movie and just crammed them into one giant thing, which like Shark Hunter that I intermingled and got this confused with, still all the exact same characters are prevalent and coming to play. And that again, you have a shark movie, a Jaws knockoff movie, and then a Steven Spielberg knockoff movie. This is the Steven Spielberg knockoff. This is, they took the Jaws essence, but they were going for the Spielberg feel. Well, there seems to be a running theme through most of the, like, actual Jaws, quote-unquote, rip-offs movies. And even, like, Night Beast has the similar thread. Um, yeah, that's a really great, that's, that's a really absolute similar thread where something is getting ready to happen, an event, and the mayor... Or the fucking well, the uh, committee has to shut it down. Winter it's always, Beast, man. Winter Beast, baby. Deal. Yeah, it's it's always the like the town needs something for the tourist race, so we can't just shut everything down to that, do the right thing and kill the beast. 
that's the biggest inclusion of this Jaws knockoff list. It's my favorite Jaws knockoff is Winter Beast. <laughs> There's no Why sharks. Trauma. Well, out of the list we're doing, we've not gotten to my favorite that I really, really think is a, a good motion picture, but probably Shark Hunter. Uh, Franco Nero is the most, uh, it's just such an off-kilter weird movie. And then you've got something like what we were just discussing with, the, the cast itself is a lot of the fun of watching this, that you see their names pop up and you just can't believe all these guys are in this Jaws knockoff movie. I and can't you... believe how high Shelly Winters is right now. That's what I can't believe. And weirdly, I bet John Houston was higher than everyone. <laughs> he was <laughs> drunk. Well, that counts. Peter Fonda might have been on some sort of speed. He looks and there's the last scene with Peter Fonda in it is him finding out about the tunnel and the unorthodox methods that have been used to create this thing. And he's like... He's standing below someone and it's a pool deck and the guy's walking up the deck and they finish the dialogue and like whatever the dubbing is, is way ahead of whatever he actually recorded. And he just turns and slowly looks at the camera and you can see him reading and just deciding he's not going to say it. And the scene ends like like Fonda had more dialogue in his last scene and you can see him just kind of shake his head like, ah, (laughs) nope, you got me. And that's it. But at the same time, this is one of the. I'd say this is one of those Jaws knockoffs you could show all of your friends. You could bring everyone over and everyone's going to have a little bit of fun watching this. What I will give tentacles over all these movies is this movie had the fucking balls. The first death in the movie is a fucking baby. Fucking the octopus steals a baby out of its carriage. The car- so there you go. What I love is they're at like a like a Jersey Turnpike intersection and the mom's got this baby just shuffling it in a fucking cart by the water. Somebody pulls up like two lanes over and she runs across the lane and just leaves the fucking newborn in the cradle and the tentacles supposedly. Yeah, fuck it. It's fine. I'm going to go three lanes over to traffic, talk. Everything's okay. Who cares? Baby's fine. Oh, you didn't count a giant octopus, did you, lady? But the establishing shot that drives that home is just the carriage all broken, floating through the water, just like a bad abortion joke. You know, this is your kid on abortion. <laughs> and it, it's just so awful. I think that would, that's a perfect uh, phrase to sum up tentacles. It's like a bad abortion joke. It's gonna get wet. <laughs> um, but speaking of Italian ripoff films, we'll talk about the last shark next, or Great White, or whatever other title it's gone. I have nothing. I've 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 spent the whole Set show. It all. I've got it all. It's got a great. Okay, so this finally we can talk about the Quint knockoff. I like, and I don't even remember his name anymore. I've lost it's Vic it. Moro. <laughs> That's who the Quint knockoff is. Well, you've got the actual like Italian guy. Uh, I remember the mayor. I don't remember his buddy. I shot. I shot the wad. I shot it dirty, and it got wet. It's Vic Morrow. <laughs> this is obviously. I paid the least attention to this movie, probably, but spent more time researching it. Well, this is this is where Death by DVD really gets fucked because I'll go through all of this, and and like you referenced with the old Argento switcheroo. It's just tentacles and sharks, and now I don't want to take Burn a bath. Out. I'm just afraid. Uh, I, just, I just get into it, man. Well, the beginning of um, The Last Shark, and this is the movie that, yes, um, uh, what is it, Universal Pictures, I guess, did Joss? Uh, they sued 
uh, the makers of this film to keep it from going public in it. This is but, the one that did not yeah. get the European and Australian release that I referenced. Eventually they previously. had to can it because yeah. of a lawsuit. If you like um, rewind for 17 minutes and then hit play and then hit play here again, it'll all make sense. <laughs> but, um, this film, like, it's, I believe, 1980, and it's a direct Jaws ripoff. It's almost the exact same film, and it starts with um, a guy doing sweet windsurfing tricks with this, like, Italian blondie knockoff song, which I fucking love. I love this song from the opening credits of this movie where, um, live enough cocaine, blah, 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 blah. I can't remember the exact lyrics of it. What's even better... Awesome. Is if you find this movie and you watch it on Amazon Prime, those exact lyrics, and I cherish this, and this might have happened to me last night, it doesn't catch cocaine and it re-references as living on cupcakes and going to heaven sky. <laughs> Just watch, that's, take that as the entire movie, living on cupcakes, going to heaven sky. Everything, and I brought this up earlier with Italian knockoffs, this movie is, we have an idea of possibly what might happen somewhere one time in America. So let's just run on that. Everyone smokes, everyone drinks Coke, everyone's in, yeah, deeply into disco. It's just uh, cowboy boots out the ass, very American, but it's a very weird idea of American. Well, I mean, this one even goes so far as James Franciscus's character. His uh, he's an, a book author. You mean Jimmy Francois, as I think Francois. I called him earlier. Um, <laughs> and his name is Peter Benton. And that's just thumbing your fucking nose at Jaws right there. It's I'm a, I'm an author named Peter Benton. Still with the big balls to say this is not we did not rip <laughs> Jaws off. Jaws off, and. Um, it uses a lot of stock footage of sharks. Um, it has a lot of stock footage. It's really obsessed with windsurfing as a sport because this one the, makes up for its usage of stock footage with awful, awful shark though. Oh God, the uh, the when they do have the full size shark, it looks it looks like it came off the uh, wall of a gift shop. It is like a big plastic. Well, piece when of you food. you remember when you were a kid, and they even I think had this in the ET, the little fish. Jaws thing for your fish tanks. That's what it looks like. like. Yeah, it looks exactly like that little fish hooker. I can't think of what they're called. Fish hooker dead guy grabber. That thing. <laughs> but um, it looks terrible when it uh, crests out of the water. Um, this also has some hilarious scenes of like the mayor and the mayor's crony when they come up against the shark and they're both very obvious mannequins. And that's really kind of a goofball scene. There's a lot of weird miniatures. Uh, that's a James Cameron style helicopter crash scene too. <laughs> oh, it's and like the miniature helicopter. It's also fucking cute and adorable. Well, like it's even Americans better though. I mean, off. it's just yeah, it's fucking cute. I'm like, you're selling it down a little bit. This guy gets pulled out of the water on the helicopter. And then the shark, this, this supposedly it's, I think it's supposed to be a megalodon, but they never reference what it is, but it's a massive, huge shark. Bites the guy's legs off, and then the helicopter pilot pans around, and it's just this tinfoil toy that gets completely crushed and sucked into the water. But it's absolutely mesmerizing. I mean, and, but you have to even, like, Jaws. Magic. That's what mad, film magic is, fuckers. Well, like, Jaws has the big scene where Quint's getting pulled into the water and his legs are getting bitten off. And, like, yeah, you can tell it's obviously not a real shark but the difference between these two is like plaster of paris to uh, a rob botine effect and it's it's just so much fun in its own right like what is it jaws 2 where you can see when brody shoves the uh 
electrical thing in the the shark's mouth, the big jaw or whatever. You can tell it's fake by that point, even that Jaws 2, Jaws 3, Jaws 4 especially are all essentially knockoffs. But you've got something where somebody really like wanted to terrify you and just fucked it all up. Just <laughs> just dropped the ball. This is another Enzo Castellari film. And Enzo, out of all the Italian like exploitation directors of that era, is most of his movies are amazingly fun more than anything. Cause he did um, a lot of like uh, Mad Max ripoffs and stuff like that. And as, as shitty as a lot of them are, they're always really fun. And this one is really fun. Like all the goofball mannequins, all the Jaws references. I mean, Vic Morrow is basically playing Gwent in this film. He's doing the same stupid accent. Uh, they're going to blow up the shark with grenades like in Jaws 3. Let's see what else we're going to do. Um, <laughs> like, at um, God, even um, when they detach the dock in this film is a reference to Jaws. It just happens to have a lot more people on it as the uh, the shark's pulling it onto the ocean. Unlike Piranha 2, this and several others all have that very big scene from Jaws 2 where they're exploring a boat and some sort of severed arm or face or leg pops up in front of you. That shows it toward the entrance of the movie. I think uh, one of the first kills in Piranha 2 shows that also, and that is just the genre. I mean, like, to this point, they're now ripping off the Jaws sequels to make a more successful Jaws knockoff because, hey, Jaws 2 made more money than the last Jaws knockoff, so let's just add that in on top of it. But it was all frightening, like... Even if you could do a supercut of Jaws 1 through 4, you would probably have The Last Shark. The like Last Shark is, like, for me, with the soundtrack, as disco-y as it is, um, I re- this is one of my preferred Jaws knockoffs. I mean, and it's bad. It's a poorly made film with effects. It's a poorly made film with stock footage. Uh, the story is just Jaws again, except we're trying to preserve this windsurfing race that's going to just bring people to the town. At least the, the mayor in this one is not quite of a big a dick. He actually does have some concern for people. But his kid gets killed, and his plan is to go fishing with a helicopter, and it gets him bitten in half. But this movie overall is just, it's a fucking hoot. I love this movie. I listen to the soundtrack on a regular basis because I think it's great. Um, but it, more than anything, this is a Hank fun movie for me. It's just really, really fun. I would have liked it more if John Houston played a big bearded guy and 45 minutes ago I didn't get all my trivia and facts wrong. <laughs> but I would have liked it a lot more. Uh, it, what makes it, I think, the most fun is just the lack of give a shit that you can tell this is one of those things that was specific. And this is a Roger Corman movie, essentially. This was made to rip off something. All right, Roger Corman's actually a poor reference. This is more like a full moon movie. This has a Charles band (laughs) kind of feel like they went in to knock something off. They were successful at it, but they crammed so much of the content. It's not just a jaws knockoff. It's a jaws one through three knockoff. Almost. You've just got all of it shoved in together and Vic Murrow. I mean, this is one of his last performances really. I mean, what he, he didn't make it too longer after this. He made a few more years. I mean, he was in a lot of Italian stuff. He was in um, 1990, The Bronx Warriors, around the same time. A couple other films. I can't remember when Twilight Zone was being made. I think 83 or 84. I wanted to say 83, but I've gotten all my facts wrong tonight, so I didn't want to uh, yeah, keep I'm, taking and I'm just that I'm usually well, close. Sometime in the mid to early 80s between 1980 and 1989. <laughs> somewhere in there yeah. somewhere in that very short 10 year span so uh, where are we where are we going now 
I guess we'll talk about probably one of the least knockoffs out of all of these movies, which is um, Barracuda from the what says it's the early 80s, but it's it had to have been shot in 1979 or 78 from my guess. I believe um, it's 1978 was when this was fully made. We still have not managed to get to my favorite, so I guess oh, that's the last. We're saving that one for last. The good it's one? my favorite, too. Oh, good. Um, I won't get my facts wrong for that one. Yeah, Barracuda, I'm going to say, was 78. I think that's when it was actually put out. Like, Barracuda is rough. Um, it was. It had written, such a better title. It, the Lucifer Project, that's because when you it's watch... It's a more movie, apt title, definitely. Yeah, it but, says when you open, when you first are in the opening of the movie, Barracuda, the Lucifer Project, and one is so much more alluring than the other. Barracuda just sounds like a Jaws knockoff, but the Lucifer Project, that's like... they were advertising it as, was a Jaws knockoff. That's what they well, thought like, was their money. If you put something like the Lucifer Project and the Devil's Reign on a disc, I was thinking I was going to get into some super Satan double feature. And one movie's about fish and one has John Travolta melting. You know, you could really mislead epically with a double feature title, The Lucifer Project. Well, I mean, like the movie was written by Wayne Crawford, who was an actor throughout the 80s. He's now deceased, but he made um, you remember the Headhunter movie you watched when you were here? That 80s about the oh, two yeah. cops. Yeah, he was in that. He was the uh, the main cop in that with a mustache. Jesus um, Christ. And he's, he's, in in every, he's one of those Dick Miller type guys. Though. Yeah, he's and he was in, he wrote the movie Jake Speed, which not many people have seen. Uh, but he was like a writer slash director slash actor for a lot of years in Hollywood. And he wrote this one and he stars in it. And also Bill Kerwin stars in it. And who's Bill Kerwin, you ask? Um, he was the detective in Blood Feast. He was a Herschel Gordon Lewis alumni who was in a ton of H.G. Lewis movies. Um, he's in the trailer for Blood Feast, of the guy who's talking to the audience about if you have a heart condition, that's Bill Kerwin. And Bill Kerwin is in this movie. It's one of his old, I think it was, no, he lived to, to the, I think, 1990, actually, but definitely died of cancer because that dude was a heavy fucking chain smoker. Um it's about nothing though, because it's kind of a typical echo horror thing of there's a plant or a cannery or some bullshit that's pumping toxins into the, um, the ocean. It's the plant. It's the, it's some sort of fucking chemical plant and Wayne Crawford's trying to figure out why, but also it's making the barracudas in the area, which are not giant, which are, they're just a little bit more like on right now and they're attacking people. But there's barely any like killer fish footage in this movie. It has some, but it ends up being so much more about like finding out how to take down this industrial uh, chemical complex. And, like, it quickly gotta... verges lanes from uh, an animal attacks movie to this echo terroristic. We have to look at the future, and in, in, to some extent, you know, you could say a liberal pinko kind of thing of let's look at the future and let's look at you're going to make global warming go crazy with your chemicals. But at the same time, it goes from you're making the barracudas go crazy with your chemicals to the government is using chemicals to control us, which isn't maybe that far off when you look at things that are put in your water or your toothpaste that have no value to you whatsoever. You know, it's it's got a point, but it just panders so much to... It's so weird, and I think that's mostly of how it's advertised is this killer fish film... It goes so many different lanes. Nothing to do with killer fish at a certain point, and it just becomes about the chemical industry of America and all these different government conspiracy things that are going on. And it has the most 
bummer ending of all time. It doesn't like, really die. Like it turns everybody dies. Yeah, it's a big old shootout, and then it ends, and everyone's dead, and there's no solution to the problem. Yeah, did you think your Jaws ripoff film would end with a shootout between corporate uh, fascists and like a, a Echo fucking Kami Pinko? And the underemphasis, even at that point, is the fish. Like we've totally lost point. Toward the end of the movie, they bring forward reference of like, well. The fish are just starving, but they can't get full just like us. And people are getting cranky because this is the actual point. The government is controlling how much glucose you get. So you get cranky and start acting more erratic, which really our government puts stuff into things that maybe you should look into. That's a completely different point. But I'd say we have too much glucose it, in our film or food right now. It's <laughs> yeah, it's really not a far fetched idea. But the entire point of this movie is people are going through sugar withdrawals and getting violent. Now fish are eating each other because they what? What they is this? Fucking Snickers. Is this an anti sugar industry thing? And, you know, but <laughs> it's like, you know, let's like let's look at uh, the shit they put in toothpaste. The shit they put in water, it has no proof. It has no value that it's good for you, but it's something that our government decides to put into the water and you drink. So when these things were happening and were initially scary to people, which they still should be, and you should look into that, but you had to do something about it. And obviously it was make barracudas eat people for like five <laughs> seconds. Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like there's I got all excited when I watched this movie for the first time because I thought I was like, okay, I haven't seen like a, a Joss ripoff in a long time. This is maybe like 10, 15 years ago. And I watch it and it's just like, what in the fuck am I watching? Where is this gone? I stopped paying attention for five fucking minutes and what? Oh, huh? And the big fucker is the ending, though. Like, you really feel you looked away too long, and there's this awesome shootout, and it's it's great. Like, they've spent some time, they've trained the actors with guns, they look professional, and then it ended. Like, what happened? It ends. It where ends did it go? Everybody's what? dead. They got shot. The corporation won. Don't and the corporation's you. the CIA. Like, there's no happy ending. It's it's Waco. Like, don't <laughs> obey or die. It's a very bleak movie that somehow is masked as this barracuda yeah. thing. And it, like, maybe 35 minutes into the movie, you get your last good barracuda kill, and it's all on land. Dry, bitter land. There's I no think plant. the most interesting thing about this movie is the idea of whatever film company put this out, deciding that they have a turd on their hands. We might advertise this as a Jaws ripoff to recoup some funds. Yeah, so it's they like go when you make back, a, it's just like, what did I get myself into? It's like when you make a Hellraiser movie and just throw Lance Henriksen into it, and it wasn't a Hellraiser movie at all, was it? <laughs> Pinhead Most never know. Pinhead wasn't in the script whatsoever. You threw him in at the very end. I can tell. And, and You've like, been in hell the entire time. Did you not notice all the weird things going on? You opened the box on an internet game. It's Neopets. What? No, don't. That's, that. <laughs> we ha we did many, many years ago that full Hellraiser expose, and I think well, that I was... Do it again. Well, yeah, I think that was before, like, seven of the new ones came out. So we've got a lot of Doug Bradley and not Doug Bradley to cover. I'm excited, <laughs> though, because we're moving into the only movie I probably know anything about. And Ooh, Orca, baby. The best. Orca is my favorite it's on this awesome. entire list. Like, I keep saying Shark Hunter is my favorite, and I love Franco Nero. It's over the top. It's so bizarre. But this movie, this fights Jaws 
not being better, but this is up there with being one hell of a movie. This has an actual point, a meaning. It's fucking sad. Richard Harris is sad. Like, um... I like the movie overall. I think I it's give you so little. Song. Like Richard Harris is sad. Run with that, Nash. <laughs> so, I, like overall with this movie, like the thing that kind of is just odd to me is the advertisement and the whole concept is the only animal in the animal kingdom other than man that is capable of revenge is a killer whale. That's kind of a dopey ass concept for a movie. It's uh, killer whales. You know they they quest for revenge when they're wronged. They mate for life, and you kill their mate. Which that would have been. Well, I mean, you could have used that as a line, though. You know, the only other animal that quests for revenge, not necessarily seeks for. I mean, which is a point and a very big point of the movie that this, unlike Jaws starts with almost an innocent nature. It's not somebody going out of their way to harm or doing anything, or like Jaws starts off with somebody getting They are whalers. Well, they're (laughs) whalers, but they're trying to capture a whale for display. They weren't going out of their way to kill one. They were trying to get it for, you know, a horrible place. Medical research, but they were not doing it in a proper way. Yeah, they They were going to take a whale whale hunters. Yeah, they're going to sell it to a place that puts a whale in a tiny little tank and and makes it suffer, but they weren't going out to hurt it. They weren't harpooning hardcore and just killing. The extravaganza of violence and sadness that is displayed post that establishment. But you, with the establishment of all these characters, Bo Derek and her first lead, and um, not Richard Burton, but one of Richard Burton's best friends, Richard. And Keenan Wins. Harris. Yes, not Keenan Waynes, but Richard Harris. Uh, you, you're given a display of these characters right off the bat of who they are, and what makes it fun is the Richard Harris character is so sympathetic, but he's a cunt. He's such a miserable dick, but you're sympathetic to him and wants the display of how awful this movie begins with uh, a, a death of a wife and an aborted child, pretty much. Yeah. I saw this as a kid, and when there's a whale miscarriage, it freaked me the fuck out beyond belief. Richard Harris is what freaks me out in that scene. How upset that actor gets, how disgusted he is by his own actions, displays what you're going to get into for the rest of this movie, because now you have a sympathetic lead with a bastard, an anti-hero, but he's not established as an anti-hero. He's established as a bastard. He's supposed to be the Quint character, but you're supposed to hate him as to where Quint is. And he's playing an old fisherman. How you would feel about an old fisherman who is very conservative in his ways, especially for, what, what 1977 when this came out? Well, compare him and to the town, though. He's not. He's more of, like, a a hippie movement fisherman. He took the business over from his dad, doesn't know exactly what to do, and the hardcore fisherman won't accept him because he, you know, when the whale dies, the town tells him the orca mate is destroying and killing and hurting the town because of him. And he has to go fight it. He says, that's bullshit. Fuck you. I'm not going to believe in that. He doesn't buy into the fisherman life. He just is making money. That's oh, his- yeah, more mean. He's more like he's stuck in his ways. He's very stubborn the entire time and he does what he wants to do. And he's not going to be told otherwise. Um, but I would say probably one of the best things about this movie is when they do establish all these characters, how they establish Bo Derek, Keenan Wynn, uh, Will Sampson, the chief, the chief is in it. And he plays the, uh, typical folksy native American character who has to tell the stories of you're going to die because the, (laughs) 
you've done that's the guy from 1979 to 1989 you hired to have a very mythical american indian speech in a movie you had to pick him and he does his job in this one as well and what probably is so interesting about this movie other than acting and character development because richard harris is two or force in this movie is like how fucking epic the movie is how epic everything is treated because like when the, the killer whale goes on a rampage destroying the town there's all these very like beautiful shots of the town on fire while the killer whale just watches in pleasure and just it's all very artfully done and all the um the backdrops that they create that aren't on a location because i'm pretty like the when they go to the um I guess to the arctic and they're around, the arctic circle and they're around all the uh the, the like the fucking icebergs and all those things it's just it's really like artfully production designed and shot for a killer whale movie that's even a, like a selling point to bring up and and tell people about this whale this killer whale sets an entire town on fire from the ocean and it's fucking awesome it's one of those scenes that you don't the pick up on up. <laughs> the entire well, town but you don't pick up on it right off the bat it's like well what's this whale doing what's this scene all about and then you piece it together and you get the enjoyment and what like when you start this movie off, you've got the perspective of Richard Harris and you understand that obviously he's a bad guy doing bad things, but his emotion, how upset he is over the, the atrocity he's committed gives you this anti-hero character. But at the same time, you have a whale. It's not a speaking role. It's not an actor. And you're given this display of this whale's family being torn from him and how upset he is that these two, Richard fucking Harris acts against a whale for 90 minutes and it's it's marvelous like it's badass fucking whale in this movie that's kind of yeah like you and that last scene though i mean spoilers but you have very very jaws richard harris on this iceberg and him falling down toward the whale and it's not you know you even get this display early in the movie of how many teeth the whale have and how vicious and how it could tear things apart and you have all of this set up to have this very bloodbath horrific scene but instead you get like the fucking undertaker dropping goldberg somebody (laughs) slapping you know just across the room this just fucking insane scene with richard harris being nailed by the whale's tail onto a iceberg what the hell that's awesome that's fucking (laughs) great that's cinema man because he wants revenge he's not this is not for food this is just to be a dick and what's funny is what the whale is doing when he blows up the town is he's calling out Richard Harris. Hey, bro, come on, fight me, bro. Let's go. Because that's the whole thing is the whale, he like, he's going to keep destroying this town if you don't go out and fight him. He wants you on the water. Like, that's what this movie is about. A fucking battle on the water between a killer whale okay. and a man. This movie essentially is that South Park episode where they have the, uh, the TV show with... Um the New Zealand actor that was in that movie Romper Stomper. Why don't Russell I know Crow? names? How do I not know who Russell Crowe is? You know, the, the, the tugboat the, show, the tugboat show. That's this movie. My <laughs> joke would have been funny if I actually could have said Russell. So Crow. the whale is Russell Crowe. No, the tugboats, Russell Crowe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, the tugboats, Russell Crowe. It gets so bad. You know, you'd think after 10 years of doing this, I'd know who Russell Crowe is, but I can tell you Romper Stomper, not gladiator. 
Not not like Hofer's first movie. Yeah. Go Virtuosity. That's even better. Yeah, not Robin Hood, not anything recent. No, you know, the guy was in Romper Stomper. No, Hank, I don't know who was in that. No, most people don't, but God bless, you do. And Richard Harris had nothing to do with any of it, funnily enough. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> he is great in this movie. It's a really good performance. and Like really, Russell Crowe and Romper Stomper. Very good, very good. Well, I mean, for you to have a character that's basically a fucking douche the entire movie and kind of a dick... He does make the character sympathetic, and towards but the end, when he goes out to it, fight though. the whale, it's like, yeah, let's do this. Like, let's see. I mean, this is what this is about now. It's about a fight. You don't want to really see either of them win. You don't want to see them destroy each other. Well, you get an establishment with almost learning. Like, uh, Richard Harris goes out to the docks, and the whale will come up, and you get these really cool shots of the whale's eye, letting you know that it's seeing Richard Harris. And then he tries to trick it, and puts up the mannequin and is, you know, wants to shoot it in the eyes and lure this thing into violence. And Bo Derek gives him the book about whales and he starts learning and recognizing the compassion between these two things of what he did and taking this creature away from its family. And you start to learn with him and you feel bad that this character is experiencing this, but you recognize that, you know, he's a dick. He doesn't want to learn, even when he's told by the Native American character, you know, you've got to go do this. He laughs it off because to him, it's just a job. He just wants to get out of the town. They go to get gas. They won't pump them up with gas. They won't fill their trucks with gas. It's this point. It's not even so much you did something wrong. It's you have to if you there's a cause and effect for everything. And if you do something, you have to pay for it. You've done something. You have to go fight the fucking tugboat. Well, I think ultimately at the end is Richard Harris accepts his fate and he's going on a suicide mission. He doesn't really want to die, but he, at the end of the day, knows it's a suicide mission. He's going to try his hardest for it not to be, but... Well, when they go to the Arctic... This is what I have to do. I mean, that's the big ending where he admits, like, we're not coming back from here. You know, it's this is the end. We got to go. But they know where they're going, and it's very Frankenstein. It's very similar to Mary Shelley because that's the last bit of Frankenstein that you've got the doctor meeting his creation on the ice block and then it floats away and they, you know, he sets himself on fire and they all go out into the end and Frankenstein is drifting dead and alone. And you've got that Mary Shelley, very Gothic man fighting its own creation because he created this anger. He made this monster. It's kind of a Gothic movie overall. It's so overemphasized and so moody for it being just basically a Jaws ripoff. And this is a direct ripoff of, like, a producer, I think it was Dino De Laurentiis, just, I need a big piece oh, picture. Yeah. So it's the big D. big face picture. Um, and it, they were able to make this uh, an experience overall to where I don't, you know, like, I don't find this movie even cheesy. I mean, it's cheesy at times just because you're involved with a, a fucking killer whale getting revenge, but they make you believe in it. And the next scene that always got to me when I saw this as a kid is Will Sampson getting crushed by the ice. I was, oh, I really liked him. And then died. I got real sad. But I think this movie overly affected me in like in a horror sense. I cannot remember when I saw it. I vaguely remember seeing this as a child at a drive-in, but I don't know if that's true or not. This so, was one of those things... I picked to do on the show and I thought it was a great idea. And then it hit me, man, I've not seen this movie since I was like 15, but I get the general gist. It's an orca that goes around and kills people. And I sat down and watched it for the first time in about a decade. And it, it's just an emotional movie because 
well, you have to Hemingway-esque at the end of the day. It is, yeah, very Man in the Sea, very Frankenstein. And like I, I feel it's very apt comparing it with especially the end of Frankenstein, that these two things uh, and Man in the Sea, uh, Hemingway itself, a man created a monster like Hemingway. Most of his stories were about man creating war and the uh, awful, awful things that happened because of war. And this sent somebody out of blind ignorance created a situation and pain and hatred that is comprehended on levels that aren't even for man that even animal can understand pain and woe and it's just emotional it's it's different like jaws you just have this it's a shark killing people there's no emotion behind it it doesn't even really state if it's rogue or why the shark's doing it it's just very big and it's eating children off the coast of martha's vineyard in this sense, you have a reason behind things, and it wraps it up enough that you feel... At the, when you finish this movie and you get to the ending credits, you feel kind of satisfied. You've seen a beginning, middle, and an end, and everything manifested itself. It's not what saying it should be. Yeah, I'm not saying Jaws doesn't have that, but... I mean, Jaws definitely does. You've got them swimming off, and it's a buddy comedy almost at the end, but this made you at least fucking think about your repercussions well, or actions. Jaws is more of, uh, for all extents and purposes, a reality-based concept. And with Orca, it's a very romanticized reality concept because it's very romanticized the life of a fisherman, um, the life of the sea, philosophically as far as like Native American history goes and all these different things. So it's, it's honestly like a love letter to like old sea chanties and bullshit like that. And it, you feel it, and you get into the the spirit and the mood of it all throughout the film. You like you are very much placed in this environment and are living in it, and that's what you really don't get from a lot of movies. Um, and you do from this one that they were able to like really kind of like the beginning of American Werewolf in London does this when they go to the uh, the pub. It's a lot of that same feeling where you really do feel like a, a kind of an outsider who's learning to belong in this brand new environment you've never been in. It feels lived in. It's fear. Cool. It's like the fear of the ocean that Jaws presented. When you were watching American Werewolf in London and they do the whole pentangle piece and the guy misses the dart and they do the that awesome joke about the throwing somebody out of a plane and uh, what was it the, this is the alamo the alamo joke whatever you feel like you're not a part of the crowd and when you're watching jaws like even the establishing shots when the movie starts and they're swimming at night you feel like you're out of place the ocean is what's horrifying in that essence and then with orca you have it's just the feeling of the unknown and being out of place because you look at these characters and your lead is a fucking orca it's the actual whale you're supposed to sympathize and understand that this creature has lost just like you could have or, or anyone in the world can experience loss this big fish is the key it's not richard harris the fish out acts him and that's the point yeah, I mean, oh, I, I would not agree that the fish outacts Richard Harris. I don't think anybody can outact Richard Harris. Richard Burton, um, maybe. And uh, fuck that. I'm a Richard Harris fan. Cake in the rain, baby, all the way. Um, I'll give you one person that could outact Richard Harris, and it's one of his best friends, and that's Oliver Reed. I don't know. I gotta go. I still gotta go. Should go with Harris? Harris? Really? Yeah, I, uh, I like Oliver Reed, but I'm not a huge Oliver Reed fan. Yeah, let's bring up their other best friends, since I've managed to mention all the Hellraisers. What about Peter O'Toole? Uh, Peter O'Toole was in Phantoms. He was the bomb in Phantoms. Phantoms like a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> not, uh, not Lawrence of Arabia, you know. To, Phantoms. To bring up Caligula. He was real drunk during that one. 
Uh, well, just like I am right now, we all have our moments to shine. God, that was the best reference we've ever had on the show. We've never that that made up for the whole got the last shark and shark hunter and tentacle all mixed <laughs> up. Well, no, I didn't mix the last. No, I had some specific things. Let's give clarity to Hank tonight. I didn't fuck up shark hunter. I'll never fuck up Franco Nero. Never. Because he will come to your house and kill you if you fuck up. That's how important Franco Nero is. I didn't fuck up Orca. I didn't fuck up Piranha 2 or Piranha. Or Barracuda. I, I didn't fuck up Barracuda. So I had two, two out of, I don't know the math. The uh, things you lot. really fucked up were Tentacles and The Last Shark. You got those really confused. Well, that's a fun point to bring up, too, though, is those movies are... They're very similar. They yeah. have almost the exact same plot. There's a point in both of those movies where a giant creature of some sort beats a boat from under, and it cracks open, and everyone falls into the water by an undersea cave. So and it's both easy. Have races where people, the racers are getting knocked off one by one. But only one did Shelley Winters do pure lines of methon. <laughs> so I guess we've really reached the, the, I wouldn't say the end of the barrel. We could keep going here, but nobody wants that. What, you want to talk about fucking crocodile movies and alligator? You want to talk about um, goddamn crocodile or killer crocodile, whatever the fuck you want to call it. It's another Italian movie. There's two of them. Talk about an alligator with Robert Forrester. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, I love Robert Forrester. I like that most of the movie is insults to him balding, but they did nothing about it. Like, he clearly was doing a bad comb over, but every joke, like, hey, you got bald? Like, dude, it's Robert Forrester. He's going to shoot you. Have you never seen him? Just to wrap all this up, you can wrap it up pretty eloquently with the fact that even today, modern-wise, you have the Asylum making movies like Mega Shark. Sharknado, all these different things, and that's all still based on Jaws. That the Jaws ripoff film has gone for 40 fucking years at this point and continues to hold very strong. That you have shark versus octopus, giant fish, whatever. And Jaws really created this sort of genre. You can even go into stuff like um, uh, William Girdler's Grizzly. That's another jaws rip off you have a mayor not one the town to get shut down except it's a giant well, it's a bear as opposed to a shark for christ's sakes you've got to look at the formats though like we brought up earlier with a spielberg knockoff a shark movie or a jaws knockoff that a jaws knockoff almost certainly has three major characters a shitty mayor or an official lead and a giant creature so that can spiral yep. out into thousands of different movies and like it I've, has yeah, like I so said, Winter times. Beast, like that fits, Winter Beast fits that format almost perfectly. But then you have a shark movie, which could be a Jaws knockoff movie, which could be a Spielberg movie like The Last Shark is, and all these things are wrapped together because that's the impact. I mean, you you take something, and that's just, uh, it, it's really why Spielberg is such a well, big name. Jaws is part of the cultural zeitgeist of culture. And I'm not even talking to that bullshit dog whistle term of Western culture and all that. It's a shark culture in general. There are toys. people in fucking India. There are people in Africa. There are people in Russia. It's a global fucking phenomenon of Jaws. Almost every country in the world knows what Jaws is and knows about the fear that Jaws entails with what people getting scared of the water. Not even that. I mean, afraid of giant beasts in some way. Even taking away Jaws, Shark Week would never have existed. There would be no specific fear in All any culture. Yeah, people nonstop are afraid, and it's not just sharks. It's, you know, like we talked about Mako. People aren't afraid of Makos. They're afraid specifically of great white sharks. That, 
uh, and this is was one of the points supposedly of the making of Mako is since Jaws the amount of shark deaths and shark hunters and people that have come out of their way to say that these things are a threat none of this really would have been part of culture if it wasn't for Jaws sharks were not a threat before this they aren't a threat now if you're out in the ocean and accidentally get attacked it's probably because you looked like a seal and you shouldn't have been surfing <laughs> I mean like you should not go surfing that's not what I'm saying but you know if there are shark warnings up if you're out at a beach if you're in the ocean and it's two in the morning I don't know did you see Jaws did you see it sharks eat people it happens think of the Kittner kid <laughs> well, it's just how much that that film changed culture, changed world culture over the years, and it still continually spawned a genre. And it's I can say the same thing for even George Romero, that he spawned the same subculture with zombie films of the dead coming back to life and eating the living. That's all well, George The big difference between that, though, is you take something that's already frightening, a human can be frightening. I mean, there's movies previous to Night of the Living Dead, like Night of the Hunter, a frightening human being uh, as a lead. You take something innocent as a, uh, anything, any creature. I mean, like uh, a cat. You turn it into this monster. Anyone can take that and turn a fear into it. And that's one of the things that really worked with Jaws is it wasn't a really well-known creature. We don't know the ocean. And going into the 70s, it's still, it's a big, scary thing. You don't know what these things do. You don't know how a shark acts. When you watch Orca, they tell you all these facts about Orca's feeling revenge and Orca's having feelings. I don't know if any of that's true, but the movie said it, so I think it is. Maybe, possibly. <laughs> that's what I'm you're listening to Orca for my facts. Yeah, but that's what you run with with Jaws. They tell you all these things about the sharks and how it's once it tastes blood, it's just going to go on a frenzy. I don't know how any of this is true. I don't know any of these facts, but I'm fucking terrified because I don't live in the ocean. You you really work with the unknown and like I referenced at the beginning of the show when you pull that curtain back in psycho you have no idea what's going to happen when you see it's this guy or it's, you don't know it's a guy when you see this female shape and somebody's stabbing somebody it's just this ultimate fear and so when the shark pops out of the water and jaws it's that same feeling mixed together it's just something absolutely unknown and that's like tentacle pulls off that the last shark pulls off that all these massive scenes of these creatures like in tentacle where it comes out from the little cave and you've just got the arm and the shots of the octopus focusing and moving towards you like it's lurching dead terror you're just playing off that unknown aspect of what is in the ocean what what can't i see what are you afraid of as a kid it's the dark yeah and i just think overall all these things are kind of analogous just to the fact that when you can shape culture just purely through your art something like Jaws, something like Night of the Living Dead, something, um... Weekend of Bernie's? Well, I mean, even something like Alan Moore, and I use this because it just, it it kind of sums up how, like, in V for Vendetta, he wrote the whole story about the Guy Fawkes mask and all that stuff, and that thing has spun off into a cultural phenomenon just from a comic book one dude wrote in the 80s that made a movie and then got passed through culturally to other people. And people, if you agree or disagree with their ideals, it doesn't matter, but they wear that mask and kind of solitude of we are together. So it's just weird how someone 
just like Alan Moore, a dude who's just hanging out in England and just, who's a really weird motherfucker is able to inspire that many people with just a piece of artwork. Same thing with Spielberg, same thing with Romero, same thing with Toby Hooper. Well, uh, Jaws and with its knockoffs and the big fear that I think is quintessential that people remember is that shark fin and that big image that comes forward of not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing what's going to be next. And like moving forward with Spielberg's career, he went into a more family friendly aspect with things and Jaws kind of was left alone in the 70s and was left with just all of these knockoffs, all of this cultural shockwave that has still echoed and still continued, like a deep blue sea, a movie that has nearly nothing to do with jaws. But if it wasn't for selling it with sharks, nobody would have gone and seen that movie. It's well, an the awful- whole concept of smart sharks isn't scary unless you're already scared of sharks, which is what Jaws made you do. Well, that's what I sharks. mean. Like, it had to be established previously that this was a fear, like, you know, and then looking yeah, at... Deep Blue Sea is like a one-up of that. It's just kind of like, well, what about they got human brains now? So you have these things established and you have fear and it's set forward from nowhere. And that's kind of what the point of filmmaking is. You take boring intellectual property like a shark it's a fish it swims around mostly in the ocean minds its own business and does nothing but what if it ate people because it's got all these teeth and this big ass fin the whole movie jaws is sold off of that fin that fin peeking out of the water uh several of these movies they just rip that off and use it completely because that's the fear it's just giving you some form of imagery to make you remember what's scary. What is being afraid of the dark? It's the fear of the unknown. That big fin, you don't know what it is. It's coming out of the water. Where is it coming from? What is it? It's the unknown. And it doesn't help that you're not on equal ground. I can't swim as fast as you, Shark. This is unfair. So, I don't know. Maybe next week. How many more Roger Corman knockoff shows can we do? What do we got left? Ooh, um... We can start doing some of his weird Bonnie and Clyde ripoffs. Oh, there's a uh, lot of those. That could be fun. Uh, a lot of those. Uh, we could talk about Big Bad Bama. We could talk, <laughs> I don't know, dude. There's so much. I mean, we could go into Aliens knockoffs that Corman did in the 80s because there's yeah. a shit ton of them. Summer is ending. We could do apocalyptical knockoff movies. Mad Max knockoffs. There's a lot of those. Well, yeah, we can do Mad Max knockoffs. Most of those are going to be Italian. Yeah, Get I'm your fucking beard shoes on, folks. I'm kind of getting excited and a little bit of a hard on over Bonnie and Clyde knockoffs. That was an oh, awful I don't idea. Know if I can do it, Hank. I don't know if I can do it. What's going to be great is if we do it, you get all the facts wrong on that show, and you confuse the last shark hunter with <laughs> every every movie we do. Oh, I don't know how if I can sit through Big Bad Mama again. I don't know if I can watch a lot of that seventy exploitation shit. It's just. I have like I have gotten myself into such a comfort zone with modern American garbage, like not modern, but like um like nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties video culture that a lot of that seventies stuff it just beats me up at this point. You know what I've been doing? I've been watching every Nicholas Rogue movie in order. Once a week. <laughs> well, you're a little bit further back than I am. Yeah, I'm having some trouble getting back into the exploitation genre, so maybe this show will really kick us into a knockoff land. We can just keep this knockoff train going. There's only so many. I mean, we can... Jesus Christ. I mean, we yeah, can I'm struggling. knockoffs. 
we no, can, there's like, plenty of different places we can go, man. It's just not doing asylum again. That's not happening. <laughs> it's really like what the show is up to is what Hank is going to tolerate for a week. Phantasm. That's what a lot of it is. Let's do Phantasm again. Oh, I can't do any more Phantasm. Not for a while. Give us a break on Phantasm. So do Phantasm Part 2 for six weeks. We'll break it up into <laughs> little mini-segmented shows. Oh, God. We're just spiraling until we find an ending. I'm going to have to get you back into some slasher films and really bottom-of-the-barrel garbage slasher films. Maybe we can do all Canadian slashers. I love those. <laughs> no, I mean, you got to watch Sledgehammer. It's the first horror movie ever shot on VHS. It's god-fucking-awful. There's a whole show. We can do shot on shittio all over. Oh, yeah. And you will want to pull your goddamn eyes out by the end of it. I just hope that somebody was listening to this episode hoping for, like, information or wanted to learn specifically about Shark Hunter or The Last Shark or Tentacle and just had a horrible time. <laughs> then they have a horrible time with a lot of these shows because some of the information's wrong sometimes. Sue me. This is a two-hour-long episode where, for 45 minutes, I thought Tentacle was a shark hunter. And it's fine. They're pretty much the same movie. Great White, Shark Hunter, Last Shark Hunter, Tentacle, all of these movies have interchanging titles. See, the majority of Jaws ripoffs either have Great White, Shark Hunter, Shark, Hunter, Sharking, all in the title. Or they can go with those obscure ones with um, the wreath. Or wreath. They're, um... God, Swamp Shark. Um, the Reef Christy wasn't a bad Swamp. one. The Reef um, I definitely would not consider a Jaws knockoff. That's just a shark movie. That's one of those, it happens to be about a shark. It's not a giant shark. It's people out on a boat and it capsizes and they're in the water. Like that movie's more of an open water style, style thing. I mean, like more modernly speaking, you have like these dumb shark exploitation movies called like Shark Exorcist and all these really goofball Sharknade, all that crazy bullshit. My personal favorite title for a modern shark film was the original title of Shark Night 3D, which was Untitled Shark Movie in 3D. That could be any, any open water movie right now. They wanted to put that on the poster, or yep. at least the director did Untitled Shark Movie in 3D. I actually like the open water series. I thought that was a refreshing change, bringing the terrifying aspect of the ocean. Then that's one of the big yeah. things. Like, that's what makes Jaws. Well, the first one, definitely, I would say. That was the most yeah, it impacted culture, most like Jaws did. The second movie, you just, water. you didn't have any sympathy. These people did this to themselves. The first movie... Things. Yeah, they all jumped off deck of their boat without looking to see where the ladder was. In open water, it's a situation anybody could get into, and that was terrifying. And that, again, like, just that open aspect of the nothing. Like, you really have to look like that's something with Alien, that they're completely alone out here in space. When no one can hear you scream. Black darkness, and when it lightnings, you can kind of see some shark fins around you. That's the one that was like, ugh. Fuck that. That looks like shit. 
I really enjoyed the terrifying. reef because of that, though, that the reef has a lot of scenes where it's people coming face to face with sharks, that their boat capsizes and they're swimming to this reef. And one of the lead characters has goggles on and will look underwater and it will do a shot of, you know, National Geographic fucking shark coming at you. But it makes you feel like you're out in the complete open with them. And that played off like that was successful, like 37 meters down. I just didn't feel anything. You were trying to... That's a CG shark nonsense. Um, It's just not for me. I honestly would feel more terror even if it was a puppet. Uh, Something would have given me more realism than knowing that they're just in a green screen. And when you make it that obvious, again, like with Jaws, when they're in the water, they're in the actual water. When Robert Shaw's going down and you've got that big muppet of a shark eating his legs, it's still the vast, dark, brackish nothing. Like you, you just feel like you're going down with the orca. It's scary. I mean, even when they're swimming off at the end, Brody and Hooper, you've just got that feeling of like, what if there's another one? What if there's one more and then the movie ends, you're still left with a little bit of anxiety. Like that worked. That what that's what made Jaws what it is. I don't get the fucking ocean. Fuck that. Well, I mean, that's like HP Lovecraft's entire career is showing you how goddamn scary the ocean is. It's endless, it's voidless. Uh, even to an extent, James Cameron, a guy that started his career with Piranha 2, he's obsessed and fascinated with the vast deepness of what the ocean is, the nothingness. I mean, he's engineered and created submarines that the U.S. Navy doesn't even use that can get to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It's same guy that makes Avatar. <laughs> that and cocaine abuse. Uh, him and Bill Paxton, I think, have been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench more than any other people on this planet. James Cameron, the director of Terminator, and Bill Paxton have uh, Jack Cousteau, scientists. Any anybody else? Anybody want to go down there? You're just gonna let Jim? Just that's what he does. Just oh fuck it, that's Jim Cameron's spot. He goes down there, smokes some cigarettes, hangs out with Bill Paxton's. All right, fuck it. Oh. That's what we explore the ocean doing. We just let James Cameron surf around with Bill Paxton. Now that Bill's gone, he's alone. That's sad. James Cameron is alone somewhere in the ocean right now. Jerking off in fucking 40,000 leagues. I figured he was just doing blow. I don't know if you could whack it with that compression because you'd be building like so much tension with like, you know, the air to jerk ratio. It might blow the windows. That's why it's so pleasing, Hank. Well, that's autoerotic asphyxiation. That's why you... (laughs) Have you learned nothing from David Carradine? Hang yourself in a hotel with Thai girls. That's how you get off. Oh, all right. I gotta wrap this fucking show up. Yeah, it's two hours and it's all awful. So the ashtray (laughs) is... is, I've emptied it twice into the floor and I've peed in it once. I've had to pee for two hours. The bottle, I peed in that too. It's empty. It's all empty. It's all over. So did you drink the piss in the bottle? No, I opened a new one. Okay. I gotta let it ferment a couple days, and then we sell it to the fans. What are we, the Howard Stern show? We're making pee jokes? Jesus Christ. What am I doing? I don't know. Ask ask yourself, Hank. Right, we'll cut this part, and then we'll just do the ashtrays empty and the bottles full. And <laughs> We're counting on Raul, our sound guy, to really help out. Yeah, any words of wisdom? Is that the end? Is that the pee joke? We're ending with a pee um, joke. Uh, here's your words of wisdom. Stay the fuck out of the ocean. It's goddamn dangerous. That's why DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. That's why DVD will now leave the ocean.
this operating day.